Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome. This is, of course, the Unexpected Cosmology, and my name is Noel Joshua Hadley. And uh, I've got like four mini presentations to give tonight. It'll be very topics, all based on things we've covered before, but I'll be expanding, of course, on it. And do me a favor for anyone listening on YouTube to like, subscribe, you know the drill. Uh, but also, very importantly, leave a message. Just write a quick note. It could be something as simple as hello, or just uh, comment on something you saw in the video you want to add to, whatever. Uh, that's just one of the great ways you can help support this ministry, so, uh, help support the YouTube channel to help it grow. So, let's get right into this. Uh, the first part that we're going to be going over tonight is called The Lost Tribes of Tartaria. And this was kind of a long time coming for me. Now, this paper right here is attached to the one I'm developing called The Cities of the Millennial Kingdom. And in that, um, you know, I'm taking the, uh, I'm presenting the idea that we are seeing the, the remnants of the Millennial Kingdom and the cities all throughout the world. I touched so far on uh, Rome and also the UK area. And that was, you know, that really took off. Uh, I discovered things in there I was not expecting to discover. It was um, some great times. And so now I'm looking more towards Asia, or what we would call Tartaria. And I'm going to be asking the questions, uh, the question, is Tartaria the embodiments of the Lost Tribes of Israel? That's why I'm calling this the Lost Tribes of Tartaria. The conspiracy this time around is that Tartaria has been scrubbed from his story but that's not nearly the whole of it. Many will throw names like Nikola Tesla at your feet and claim it was free energy they were attempting to suppress, which by all indications is true. I'm not denying that. Still not what I'm getting at, though. My aim here is to widen your peripheral vision so as to include the whereabouts of the ten tribes of Yasharel. Notice how I didn't call them lost just now. We keep using that phrase, the lost tribes of Israel. And why is that? Most likely it is because our post-mud flood inheritors desired their misplacement to be so. Look, just because they were divorced from the land doesn't mean they forgot who they were and where they derived from. Maybe some did. Certainly not all of them, though. Then again, now that I think about it, our controllers were a wild success in so much as we have succumbed to the spoon-fed narrative. That is to say, we too are lost, having forgotten who we are. Whether you derive from Mongolia or Nigeria, Cameroon or Sweden, Germany or the Navajo Nation, the far greater likelihood is that you too descend from Abraham through one of the tribes of Yasharel. Now, 
I don't talk about this type, but I'm going to go ahead and bring this up while I'm here. Whenever I speak to anyone who is a dispensationalist or of dispensational dispensationalist thinking, or let's just say Christian in general, it could be Catholic, it could be Orthodox, Evangelical, Baptist, they will say things like, uh, I don't have to obey the commands, I don't have to obey the law, the Torah, the instructions in righteous living, because those were just intended for the, the who? The Jews. And they say, well, I'm not a Jew, so I don't have to, to obey. And I'm like, really? Are, how, how do you know that? I mean, assuming that it's just for the Jews, how do you know that you are not descended genetically from one of the 12 tribes of Yaakov of Israel, who was, of course, the grandson of Abraham? How do you know? Because, of course, the Jews, Yehuda, is just one of the 12. Is this like a game of Russian roulette with your soul that you want to play? Because they were, they were disbanded all throughout the world. And this research, I mean, this could be a, a thousand-page book, just looking at where they went in South Africa and, and, like I said, Nigeria, Cameroon, all the way up into Sweden, Sweden, right? Um, all the way out to Tartaria. And they were everywhere. The, 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 the 12 tribes, the 13 tribes, however you want to count, they went everywhere. And the likelihood is that we are descended from Israel through one of the 12 tribes. I should say descended from Abraham through one of those 12 tribes. There is far more of a likelihood that we are than not. And in fact, uh, it's at least a theory I'm playing with that um, genetically, if we come to the truth, you know, might as well count us in uh, to the genetics. But that's just even a side note to that. Where was I? I got so excited, I lost track of where I was. Okay, so they were everywhere and had already planted their sukkah on the continents of the earth before the advent of the Millennial Kingdom. I aim to cover a great deal many of those geographical connections over the following so many pages. However large this paper grows is anybody's best guess. There was a time not so long ago when our map makers knew exactly what was going on, particularly where the Tartars, the Tartar sauce, the Tartar people, were concerned. To call to mind the kingdom of Tartary was to invoke the tribes of Yasharel. They were one and the same, which... If, if, if this is true, guys, if this is true, that Tartary was Yasharel as an embodiment, it's, it's so ironic because many of the people pushing the grand, greater Tartary research, uh, if we're being honest, they hate the Bible. They hate it. So, um, really interesting. Hopefully you enjoy a topographical projection as much as the next man, because I'm thinking... Maps will be required of us. In recent decades, hundreds of these intricately hand-drawn charts have surfaced from obscurity, each serving as another clue to our not-so-distant past. I have long poured over them, as I'm sure many of you have, speculating upon the possibilities without fully commenting upon the story that nearly all appear to testify to. This one in particular stands out as the cream of the crop. Because look at what is happening. Stage right 
particularly. The earth has been divided into three separate segments according to the sons of Noah. Africa has been given to Ham and Europe to Japheth, those places we know about. If you don't believe me, then I will ask you to read Yohilim or Jubilees chapter 8 for yourself, which goes into great detail about the dividing up of the earth. But then check out the pink stain on the map. I didn't say pea stain, just that may have come out that way, but the pink stain. It includes China and India, Russia and Mongolia in the Far East, as well as modern-day Syria, Turkey, Israel, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and all the stands, you know, Pakistan, Afghanistan, go down the list, there's a lot of stands, of the Middle East. Grand Tartary belonged to Shim. Now, there's some more maps for your consideration there on page uh, three and I could have added many, many more, just keeping it simple. As well as a little snippet here that I pulled on Genghis Khan from Wikipedia. There are, of course, dozens of map, maps depicting Grand Tartary. They fluctuate in size depending upon the year and the map maker's mood. Have you ever visited a Tapanyaki Grill? The chef, the chef takes out his meat cleaver and slices and dices right in front of you while the flames are hot. Now, perhaps I mispronounced Teppanyaki Grill. As you guys know, I am terrible with pronunciations. Last week was a huge embarrassment that, you know, I'm talking about Ed McMahon and I'm like, I'm, I'm lost in my own writing. I'm like, Ed McMahon. And no, that was not a Mandela effect. That's just me being terrible at, 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 pronunciation, very simple names like Ed McMahon uh, or Genghis Khan. So here we go. This is often like that. I, I could show you any number of maps. Uh, I could show any number of maps to you and then you would tell me very few can agree. What does seem certain in all of this is that Genghis Khan has something to do with it. If you need a refresher, our Illuminati written history books portray him as a brutal emperor who massacred millions of Asian and Eastern Europeans. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't really know. But yeah, that guy. Khan was uh, not, the, not the villain from Star Trek II, by the way. Khan was the founder and first great Khan emperor of the Mongol Empire, which is furthermore said to have become the largest continuous or contiguous empire in history after his death in 1227. I shouldn't have said longest continuous. It's longest contiguous because I think Egypt is the longest continuous empire, if I'm not mistaken. His arms reach extended all the way to the Gaza Strip, which is modern-day Israel. That would be what I believe is ancient Yasharel. The maps of Tartaria attest to this much. I am showing you his official bio, if you follow that link, so as to highlight the glaring oversight. Nowhere is Tartaria mentioned, and why is that? The historians won't show you that part. Now, this is review for some of you from a few weeks ago when we went over this, when I went over my Star Wars paper, but i uh, got to repeat some of this stuff. I might as well get this out of the way as well. You, you happen to be looking at a declassified CIA document from 1957, the, the height of the Cold War, which describes Soviet Russia's cooking of tartar, so, uh, tartar sauce history from the books. The writer says the history of Tartary was rewritten, but then corrects himself and clarifies that it was way worse and that it was actually falsified. 
All right, well, let me try that again. The writer says, uh, well, take two, take two. Action. The writer says the history of Tartary was rewritten, but then corrects himself and clarifies that it was way worse and that it was actually falsified. In this way, the documents suggest the Muslims of that region, and in fact, generations of Muslims, have forever been denied the opportunity of learning the true facts regarding their nation's past. Hmm. Hmm. That's a large swath of land to collectively erase the memory of, but it appears as though the Ruskies were a wild success. But then I hope you notice something regarding the mysterious disappearance of Tartary. The U.S. didn't challenge the USSR, even if a scarce few of us happened to read about it in a declassified intel report. Why not? I mean, had the United States government wanted to beat the communists at their own game, why not make a case for Tartary in between the duck and cover drills? And no, even the Western World Order dropped Greater Tartary like a bad habit. Kind of like how the Soviets had the perfect opportunity to expose the Apollo 11 moon landing for uh, the, the obvious hoax that it was, and they bowed out. That should give us all pause as to who is actually calling the shots. What we have before us is a missing empire as well as an entire people group, seeing as how the Russians as well as the Muslims and really everyone, including the Chinese and the Americans, were spoon-fed the usual propaganda. The reason why has been explained by many historians of Tartary as of late. Greater Tartaria wasn't simply contained to Asia and Eastern Europe. No, it was in actuality a worldwide empire. Even the American continent participated. And you know my conclusions by this point. There are plenty of road signs to show the Millennial Kingdom of Mashiach happened already, and that we are well-traveled into the short season by this point. The evidence is in fact overwhelming. I have devoted the last few years of my life covering what happened in the whereabouts of 70 AD. It's origins and its end, the cathedrals they left behind, as well as the hidden wilderness, where the party is ongoing. Whoop, whoop. Among dozens of other papers, while keeping completely mum on the lost tribes issue, well, no longer, I have finally found my roadside directions in scripture, and am pleased to give you the download on Yasharel and Tartaria. So this comes from Second Isras. I'm pausing for a drink of coffee. Let's see what this says. Those are the ten tribes. Ooh, this sounds good. Which were carried away prisoners out of their own land in the time of Husha, the king, whom Sal, Sal, uh, Salman Nesser, there's me butchering names, my apologies, the king of Asher, that would be Assyria, led away captive, and he carried them over the waters, and so came they into another land. But they took this counsel among themselves, that they would leave the multitude of the heathen and go forth into a further country where never mankind dwelt, that they might there guard their statutes, which they never kept in their own land. And they entered into Perath by narrow places of the river. For the Most High then showed signs for them and held still the flood till they were passed over. 
For though that country there was a great way to go, namely of a year and a half, and the same region is called Arzareth. Then dwelt they there until the later time. And now when they shall begin to come, El Elion shall stay the springs of the stream again, that they may go through. Therefore saw you the multitude with peace. Second Ezra 13, 40 through 47. And um, I just thought of this. I, I This is not covered in this writing. I just thought of this. I wonder if, you know, this Parath, which some people would say is the Euphrates River, but I wonder if this is actually talking about the land bridge. I, I just thought of this. Um, that's really interesting. That the, it held back the water so they could cross over this year and a half journey. The fate of Yashrael is told to us in 2nd Esdras. They were hauled out of the land by the Persians to places like Nineveh, but then eventually hauled the U-Haul trucks east to a region called Arzareth. The, the last mention that we have of the lost tribes, to my understanding, is in the book Tobit. Great read. But they just talk about the lost tribes sitting around in, in Nineveh, and then that's it. We don't know what really happens to them after that. So that's the key in all of this. Arzareth. It's not a mythological name if that's what you're thinking. The writer didn't just make a word up because it left a good aftertaste in the ears of his reader. No, Arzareth was a real place which could be found on topography. Even if mankind had never dwelt there. He was giving us their co coordinates and I finally know where it is. At least I think I know where it is. I offer you another map of Tartaria. Study it well. There are literally dozens of these maps, though I think th this one in particular will nab your interest. I make no promise of others, and so you may need to refer back to it. I trust you at least know where Greater Tartary was in the general vicinity of the world. Russia mainly, but also Mongolia. The map is dated to 1598 and actually covers a large swath of Asia. These two bodies of waters uh, in the upper left-hand corner is the Black as well as the Caspian Sea. On the left there, not on the right. The mountain range to the south is the Himalayas, where, where in India and China are nestled. It shouldn't be too difficult locating Japan, the green island in the ocean. The massive land on the far right is a sloppy depiction of Alaska, Canada, and California. And so, find the ship passing through the Bering Strait, northbound. The land of Arzareth is portside to the ship. Here is a closer view if that helps. Arzareth is in bold print. Difficult to miss it. Not an innuendo either, seeing as how the map maker was kind enough to include a 2nd Ezra 13 reference. Hmm... It says 4th Ezra chapter 13, but that's the same thing as 2nd Ezra. I will remind you that the map is dated to 1598. The world has certainly changed since then, no? Gone are so many of these cities and place names. Try to find Tartaria, Tartaria in any modern history book for starters, but then what about some of these other references like Danarum and Naphtali Taru? There are there are two of your lost tribes right there. I could show you, of course, other maps, and you, you could see Reuben in there. Like, the, the, the tribes are accounted for. They're there in Tartaria. Dan have the habit of naming all sorts of places after themselves, it seems. 
Dan, Mark, Sweden immediately comes to mind. There's other places all over the world. You know, the other tribes, they didn't seem interested in naming places after themselves. Dan was really into that. They like to leave their mark. Ha ha ha. You know, the mark of Dan. Telling us that they, they not only moved west, but they also had a hankering for the northernmost territories, much as it was during their tenure in Yasharel. If you guys recall, they, they were the first to forsake their inheritance and they moved further north. And it is interesting that all throughout the world, the, the, the northernmost places is where you kind of tend to see Dan. I, I don't know why that is, but that's just the way it is. Now we have some beautiful pictures here of a place called, well, it used to be called Quincy. Really, there is so much to explore that I don't even know where to begin. A, a prominent feature on the map can be found just to the south, south of Arzareth. Marco Polo explored Quincy on his travels and referred to it as the City of Heaven. I mean, you look at those pictures and it's like, I, I get it. it. It was beautiful. Stamp that onto your passport, why don't you? I'm sold. Today, the city is known as Hangzhou. And though our controllers have undoubtedly done their part to carve it up from something once resembling a star fort city on the water into the unrecognizable, remnants of the once glorious, I'll say it, Millennial Kingdom city can still be discovered. I am pausing to show you this because Arzareth is a place, but also a general term referring to the entire region. That couldn't be any more evident than with the Dan and Neftali references. The tribe of Yashril weren't simply instrumental in cultivating the Far East, though. No, the land itself was uninhabited before their arrival, as Esdras tells us. They built it from the ground floor up, and everybody, including the mapmakers, knew it. Believe it or not, the very name Arzareth derives from the Torah, and boy, does it have a story to tell. You can read all about it in Deuteronomy. And Yahuwah rooted them out of their land in anger and in wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another, uh, that would be, I guess, Eris, land, uh, a heret, and it, and it is this day. The secrets of Yahuwah Elohainu are given to his children and their sons forever and ever that they may observe every word of the what? The Torah. That they may observe every word of the Torah. Repeat that as over and over and over again and still tell me that Yasharel was not kicked out of the land because they forsook the Torah and that they were taken to another land so that they may observe it forever. Some serious cognitive distance on that one. Deuteronomy 29, 28-29. So, Arzareth is a combination of the two Hebrew words Eris, Aheret, uh, uh, which is translated to mean another land. I'm actually wondering if Asia is a distortion of the same name. Asia, Arzareth. Asia might imply another or an alternative land grab for the sons of Shem. Why were they sent to the other land? Because they rebelled against Elohim's commands. Duh. They hadn't even arrived in the promised land yet, and already Yahuwah was telling them what would happen. Their tenure wouldn't last long. Well, if that's not messed up, it's the truth, but it's the, that would have been a tough uh, pill to swallow. Uh, 
It's a biblical story for those of you who need caught up to speed. Though, here is the short of it. And I've gone over this so many times, but, you know, I have to cover this over and over again, or else people won't believe me. Yahuwah handed Yasharil a bill of divorce. Look it up in Yermiyahu 3.8. If you don't believe me, that would be Jeremiah 3.8. There's your, there's your coordinates, your address. And the thing about a divorce is that it's final. There was no returning to the land from which they were vomited. It's not like he didn't give them another chance in Asia or Arzareth, though. And look at the reasons why Yahuwah didn't give up on them. That they may observe every word of the Torah forever and ever. The ever was added for those who argue that forever is only a temporary word. L-O-L. Nearly everyone thinks they can do away with the Torah and that it will turn out different for them. The sons of Yasharal were no different than most modern-day Christians, apparently. Now, I had started a few pages ago, uh, or I, I had stated a few pages ago, how there are dozens of maps in antiquity worth referencing, as they nearly all seem to show the same results. Well, here's my favorite of the bunch. It's the Urbano Monte composite map, which I so often talk about. There's a link to the actual uh, homepage for the map. And I, if you have it, just go there, explore it, spend hours. You can spend a whole day just looking at every little detail, and I have yet to discover everything in there. It is so incredible. It's dated to 1587, though just between you and me, the one is an I for Jesus, telling us that the year of its creation is actually 587. And look, there is Arzaret, precisely where Tartaria or Tartary ought to be. Land of the unicorn, apparently. Unicorns are a symbol of Ephraim, you know. Underneath the name Arzaret is a phrase, dual sonai dieko tribu de Israel. Those are foreign words. I'm detecting a hint of Latin. Not totally sure on that, but fun fact Russian is heavily influenced from the Latin, despite being a Slavic language. Technically, all the, ro the Romance languages, Spanish, French, Italian, Portuguese, and Romanian, are descended directly from the same source. Now, you know, people talk about how it's amazing how people in different countries can speak all these different languages. Well, it kind of helps if you can learn a Romance language, because they're all kind of dependent on each other. You kind of learn one Romance language, and then you get a second, a third, and they all kind of start rolling off the tongue. Anyways, Latin. It's a good thing that I took Latin in college. True story. But you should. But then you should know in all confidentiality that I failed the course. Another true story, unfortunately. Most, mostly because I handed in a blank final. I actually sat there for the whole final. I didn't fill out a... Yeah. Anyways, the professor just looked at me with these wide eyes like, what? How could you? Yeah, I was a rebel like that. And to what end? If only my professor had told the class it was the official language of Tartaria we were learning. Or perhaps I should track him down some two or perhaps I should track him down some two decades later and let him in on the news, hoping he can translate the message for me. Then again, the old man is likely dead by now. He was he was pretty old, you know, twenty something years ago. Yeah, rest his soul. My only hope is to come out of retirement and give it the old college try. So here it goes. Arzuret with two pronunciations, and ten tribes from Yasharel. That's my translation of it. Hmm. Supposing I translated the entire line correctly, 
then that's a message I can fall behind right there. Because as you all know, I can barely pronounce the names of foreign people and places correctly, given that I fall on the California spectrum of post-Babel tongues. And so if there are two different ways of pronouncing something, then I have a fighting chance. The elephant in the room in regard to the Urbano Monte map and there's actually a lot of elephants in the room, but is that it shows an actual elephant being carried off by a bird. But then an even bigger elephant is in how Urbano unashamedly lists a great deal many pre-existing cities across North America, conveniently where the World Fairs were held. On closer inspection, they are a hop and a skip away from Arzareth, right across the quote-unquote land bridge, which the Smithsonian people keep talking about. Kind of makes you wonder if the people of Arzareth walked any place if you get my drift. Give me a moment for the usual cut and paste, and I will show you what I mean. Among North America cities, you should be able to spot the capital city of Quiv Quivira, of the Quivira province, easily enough. It's over there on the left of this picture parked right alongside the two Tatankas. We are told that Quivera was a mythological city, one of the seven of gold, which the conquistadors sought after. But come on, you and I both know St. Louis uh, when we see it. I'm thinking Chiogiga is none other than Chicago, or what I've also referred to as the, the mythological city of Chilaga. The same thing as Chiogiga, Chicago. There are dozens of other cities, and it's a shame that they destroyed them, because think of all the revenue from the World Fairs. You will get cutes and tell me the cities of the plain are Native American villages. Amazing, then, how San Francisco is listed among them. I wonder which tribe that one belonged to. Miwok, is it? I will remind you for the third time that the date on the map is i 5 87 or 1587 if you must persist official history claims the city on the bay wasn't founded until 1776 oops but even then its name was yerba buena it wouldn't become san francisco until 1835 or thereafter story has it that its first inhabitant william richardson pitched a camp out of a ship sail on a sandy rise near what is now grants and clay yeah, right. It wouldn't even receive the official San Fran title until January 30th, 1847, in a perfect symmetrical buildup to the Masonic gold rush hoax. How very strange, then, considering that a Spanish-era map shows a city along the coast called San Francisco. Call me crazy, but 16th century mapmakers weren't prophets. Somebody is lying. It's not like I'm the first to make the claim, either. The Millennial Kingdom had only recently met its end when, in 1650, somebody named uh, Manuel Diaz so so Eero, we'll just leave it at that, brought the Yashrael and American Native connection to everyone's attention. And you know what I should have covered, too, I ran out of time, is that in the late 1500s, 1600s, some of the earliest references we can find to Tartaria, they were saying the same thing, that the Tartarians were, the Mongols were the lost tribes of Israel. Well, that's really interesting. And of course, they introduced these concepts just to 
to destroy them, right? They introduce them early. Okay, you've heard this. It's none of it's true. It's all fake. Manuel went by other names as well, such as Manessa ben Israel being one of them. Yep, he was a Jew. Though his friends called him by his Hebrew acronym MBY or MBI. Adorable. No, I'm not making this up. The writers of history might, but I am not. Seek him out for yourself on Wikipedia if you must. He's also listed as a Portuguese rabbi in Amsterdam, if you can make sense of that. A Gematria fanboy and Kabbalist, a diplomat, and is also claimed to be the founder of the first Jewish printing press. Busy boy. Between you and me, he looks like a Jesuit. That's just a hunch, though. His group of friends were equally interesting. Many of them, including uh, millenarian, millenarian, Petrus Serrarius, I get, I murder these names, were promoting the same thing, uh, millen millenarianism, uh, millen <laughs> uh, whatever, it's not a skin condition. Manessa ben Israel's book, The Hope of Israel, promoted the idea that the Native Americans were the lost tribes of Yasharel, and furthermore, that their discovery was a heralding sign of the coming messianic era. That same year, in 1650, isn't that interesting that, that my, of course, uh, my thought is that the Millennial Kingdom came to a close around 1500 or so, and you see the Zionist movement start to pop up right afterwards. Very interesting. That same year, in 1650, Thomas Thorogood would go down as the first English author to make the case. Try to read his book title in one breath. Jews in America, or probabilities that those Indians are Ju Judaical, made more probable by some additionals to the former conjectures. That's his book title. From there, the Lost Tribes idea continued with establishment establishment men such as Cotton Mather, you probably heard of him, the New Jersey lawyer Elias Budinot, and the Quaker leader William Penn. Perhaps most notably in 1775, James Adair, a 40-year veteran Indian trader, became a meticulous chronicler of the Native American religious and social customs when, ide when identifying Yasharel in his equally long book title. Let's see if I can say this in one breath. The history of the American Indians containing an account of their origin, language, manners, religion, and civil customs. In title. That's just like our controllers to rule out the truth and then tell us to forget about it. Check out those tassels on those lovely young ladies. Why don't you? It's like I've often stated, the people of the Torah simply don't wear zitzits like they used to. Good for them. Keeping to their fashionable roots and doing it better than the rabbinical community. Now, if, if you must know, I, I'm not being just sarcastic here. I think there's a good, you know, I, I wear tassels. Um, I wear the, the, the traditional, um, you know, uh, I guess the Jewish uh, Spaniard uh, tassels. However, I think that there's a very good case to be made that the tassels that the Bible is talking about on all four corners, this is it right here. Look at those pictures. This is the tassels that they're talking about. 
on your garments, on your blankets, on the four corners, on your sleeves. Just, just wear tassel, go tassel crazy. And it's not just the Native Americans either. You see this on the pioneers and others uh, pictures. As soon as the uh, pictures start coming up, we see people wearing tassels. That's really interesting. The men as well. If these, if these three don't spice up your tartar sauce, then I can't help you. And gentlemen warriors, every last one of them. Also, it would be terribly difficult to forget about the father spirit with all the, those tassels blowing about in the breeze. Now, wouldn't it? I'm getting all sorts of new ideas for how I'd like to go about town moving forward. The guy from Dances with Wolves had the right idea. I just may decide to find some moccasins and feathers for my next speaking engagement. I'm actually trying to figure out how I can dress... Um, I'm I'm serious. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna start dressing in tassels. But you know, I, I need to find like wool or linen uh, uh, attire that uh, you know goes tassel crazily. I'll do it. I'll wear it because I think that this is more biblical than the the way that Hebrew roots advertises it. Now there is a good-looking couple right there. Humanity has truly fallen from its nobler quote-unquote pagan roots. It is truly unfortunate that they were lied to when these photos were taken. Do they know it's Sukkot time in Arzareth? If they do, then they're not talking. And I don't blame them. Best to kill them off and round the survivors up on the reservation, I suppose. That will teach them. Shut them up and indoctrinate them. Cause them to forget about everything as well. It's so comforting knowing how the good guys keep winning every war and then telling us about their victories over evil in the history books, but I digress. So that's all I have there on that expansion to the Cities of the Millennial Kingdom, which I'm going to be changing the name now to um, The Lost Tribes of uh, Tartaria. This is a better title. All right, so now we're moving on to the second part tonight. This next segment, The Outer Darkness. And this is in the book I released, um, The... Hidden Wilderness. I can't even remember the title of my own work. Uh, the Hidden Wilderness. I think I need more coffee. Thank you, Free Flow. Uh, the Outer Darkness. Nearly every theologian on the planet, that is not a Freudian slip, will disagree with me regarding the whereabouts of the Outer Darkness and know that wasn't a glitch. The, the spinning, wobbling globe, which so many people hug to their bosom like comfort food or a nightlight, is that location, according to my best estimate. We're living in it. Oh, I'm very willing to be wrong. I mean, who wants to live in the outer darkness, right? It's not really something that I could know for certain. All I'm doing is putting the puzzle pieces together on flat earth topography, and the picture sure is coming together together nicely if I do say so myself. Only recently I asked you to pull the ecliptic dial off the prog clock and lay it over the moon map. Now, I say only recently, it was like a chapter or two ago in the book, all right? So we're falling chronologically here in the book, but just as a quick review, I, I showed how uh, uh, the, the, the moon, of course, has a map on it that, you know, the, our realm, our, our, our side of the realm, but what you would call the AE map, is like maybe half of it of the greater realm, but it's more like a third. Uh, but we might be the 33%. You know, 33 degree, right? We might be the 33%. Uh, land of the uh, 33, uh, you know, 
percent of the fallen angels. Um, and that I kind of think that that's the, the point of that magic number, who they're actually worshiping, the 33%. Only a portion of our greater Rome could be read at any one time. If you, if you happen to lay it down upon its current coordinates, which is to say in league with the circuit of the sun and the moon, then the circle of our known world remained visible, whereas the greater realm was concealed by the crescents. Okay, so if again, if you can think about, and you'll see illustrations on the following pages, but if you could think about the Earth as a circle and that the entire moon, the, the map is on the moon, uh, then our realm would be like a circle within the circle, and the 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 parts of the map that is not within the circuit of the sun and the moon, it forms a crescent. All right. Hopefully you can all kind of envision that in your head. I don't know if you noticed, but the crescent moon just so happens to be one of the most common symbols in the game of heraldry. I even concluded, included two coat of arms directly over the chapter heading, the outer darkness. Just just to start us off on the right foot. So refer to that again if you'd like to. There are crescent moons on there. As we can see here in a, a Wikipedia article for symbols of Islam, it says the crescent is usually associated with Islam and regarded as its symbol. The crescent and star symbol became strongly associated with the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. By extension from the use in Ottoman lands, it became a symbol also for Islam as a whole, as well as representative of Western Orientalism. Now, Islam, I, I will confess, Islam is a big mystery to me. Big mystery. Um, there's a lot more I would like to look into Islam, uh, the Muslim faith, the Quran, so on and so forth. Um, but it, it was interesting in the, the CIA uh declassified doc from 1957 where they say in there how islam has been lied to by russia that whole land was tartaria and they've all their very identities they've been lied to so that's something to consider in all of this most people will turn immediately to islam likely in protest thinking what i'm trying to advocate can't be quite right especially since the crescent moon is a cake topper decorating the domes of mosques across the Islamic world. And I've been to many places across the Islamic world, and I you know, can testify to this. Well, then the controllers of Islam have just as much right to play the controlled opposition game as the Pope of Rome and the controllers of the other prime religions. But there is something that you should know. Though it is true that the crescent is allied with Islam and regarded as its symbol, it is a recent association thanks in part to the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. That would be the 1800s. Only afterwards did it become a symbol of Islam as a whole. That little known nugget of information only took me a moment to look up. Wikipedia lays it out in one of its articles. We are not told about the mud flood reset, but they needn't have to. The lights went out on the world stage, and when they turned on again, the Muslims were cradling its, the, the crescent moon in their lap. Like I said, controlled opposition. Get used to it. The crescent is something that I think about often nowadays, especially considering it's on the flag of my present home state, South Carolina. It is indeed difficult going anywhere without the wind flapping you in the face with it. But most people don't realize 
is that the modern flag wasn't adopted until January 26th, 1861. That would be the start of the American Civil War, which would line up with the formation of the Confederacy. It is during that assembly meeting when they added the Palmetto, because we are, of course, the Palmetto State. Not the Crescent Moon State, or the Palmetto State. I'm not sure why they added the Palmetto, but if I had to guess, it was to give the federal government, as well as Lincoln's federal income tax, the finger. I will remind you that the present flag is the Confederate flag. Apparently, cancel culture hasn't caught on to that yet. They'll get there once you know, their education, they're a little slow in this kind of stuff. I probably should have mentioned that in the video because all it takes is one to hear it. Prior to that, the crescent had already been a prominent feature, technically the flag's only feature, when South Carolina was a leading member of the 13 colonies. William Moultrie, we, have, we had a fort named after Moultrie, is accredited with the design in 1776. He employed it during the defense of Charleston. The Brits shot it down. Uh, a sergeant, William Jasper, raised it up to rally the troops, and the rest is history. Why is liberty stitched into the crescent? I know what liberty is, but do you know what liberty is? It just so happens to be scribbled precisely where the hidden wilderness resides. And so, what were the original flag makers attempting to convey with a message such as that? Considering all that we've learned, it's difficult not reading between the lines with something like that. Even among my own hidden wilderness crew, the mere idea that we are residing within the outer darkness will not always be easily accepted, because who wants that? I have been told that the prog clock proves us to be in the lit portion, whereas the real estate symbolized by the crescent is the dark, but that is not how the light of the moon works. Just looking up at the next waxing crescent, uh, just look up at it, why don't you? Or waning for that matter. It is not difficult to see what portions of the moon are lit. We're not residing in the lit portion. No, we're in the dark. Telling someone that they reside within the circle of the crescent coat of arms isn't necessarily a compliment. I totally understand that we have a sun to light up the skies some of the time, but that just plays right into the hand of the Shadowland allegory. Plato's cave and all that. Everything is but a shade of the true heavenly reality. This goes way back to the mystery religions. And of course, Plato is just giving, getting his information from Egypt and, and Babylon and so on and so forth. This goes way back. That from the very beginning, they, they would talk about how the sunlit land is actually... The Shadowland, right? It's all, it's, it's not the, the, the true form. The, the moon giving forth her own light should be your first clue. She doesn't need the sun, despite what the Copernicans might claim. Likewise, every hidden wilderness reference that I can find insists the blessed land is somewhere on this earth, well beyond the sun's horizon, but that it is also illuminated from a source far brighter than anyone in the sunlit world could imagine. We know the light of the world and who that is, and that the darkness does not recognize it. But also, the fact that the self-giving light forms a crescent is easily explained. And I will if you'll let me. So, we see here Genesis 1.16, And Elohim made two great lights, 
the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made also the stars. And then we see in Matthew Yahu or Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. But then I just realized something. I told you the moon gives forth her own light without backing up the claim. Somebody is bound to complain from the astronomy club. Say no more. I have included Moshe's account of creation as well as Yahushua's prophecy of a coming tribulation, and nowhere do I see a rock doubling as a reflector. Then again, show me an actual ball that does what the physics people claim. For most of you, this, dis this discussion belongs in a Hebrew Cosmology 101 crash course and is all review. Hang in there. Do something constructive while you wait on my explanation to the globe huggers. Clean the house or go jogging or knit a sweater or something. You know who we're dealing with. Thank you, the management. I have heard many ball lovers claim Mashiach didn't have the time to educate people about cosmology, and so he simply agreed with Moshe so as not to argue. I actually hear, I read this a lot. It's pretty hilarious. Like people are actually claiming, oh yeah, yeah, Yahushua, he knew better, but he just, he, he didn't want to uh, go, you know, argue with their arrogance. Because there was a cross to be hung from, and there were already Greek philosophers to educate everyone on the subject. Hilarious. They seem to overlook the inconvenient fact that he is the word, which tells me that he actually dictated the two lights narrative to Moshe. But we are not allowed to connect those scripture verses in Sunday school. Now, this is the part that has me really excited right here. In optics... Uh, caustic is a curve of concentrated light, defined as the envelope of light rays reflected by a curved surface. We all know about the rainbow after a rain shower. The rainbow forms its arch because of the solid dome in our sky, which it mimics, the firmament. A lesser known example, though, is what might be observed in a coffee cup. The experiment is referred to as the coffee cup caustic. You can all do this experiment yourself. One which we are, well, as I say here, one which we are all capable of. Given a strong concentrated source, the provided light will reflect off the inside of the cup, forming a curved or crescent line. It works because, as Paul said in his vision, the blessed land is located in the furthest extremities of the earth where the firmament touches down with a place called Oceanus. The outer darkness is referred to on a few separate... Okay, so as you can see, what I'm saying here is that you can see there, there's an actual crescent that goes around the circle of the earth that is just pure light. And you would have the the... The, the revolution or the circuit of the, the sun and the moon in the center portion there, that would be the, the sunlit lands. What I'm calling, what I'm suggesting to you is actually the outer darkness. The outer darkness is referred to on a few separate occasions throughout the Bezora of Matsafyahu, and I intend to take you through them, though here are the references if you would rather commit to a head in wilderness Bible study on your own. Matsafyahu, Matthew 8.12, 22.13, and 25.30. Well, here is the first mention. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Yitzhak and Yaakov in the kingdom of heaven. 
But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That comes from Matthew 8, 11 through 12. The emphasis seems to be on the kingdom of heaven arriving in one location only to have the rebels removed to another. That other would be the outer darkness. But then something that I never noticed until it was pointed out to me the other day is that the children of the kingdom would be the ones removed from the premises. I mean, I had read that before and always took it to mean the Jews of Mashiach's generation, but now I'm not so sure. That may still be the case. I'm just wondering if the children of the kingdom are inferring the offspring of the millennial kingdom, which is us, by the way. So let me just read that quickly again. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. Maybe that will start ringing some bells with, um, with us as we look into the orphan trains, the orphan population everywhere, you know, the cabbage patch kids, all that kind of stuff that we talked about. What went on uh, in the past? Are we the children of the kingdom that was cast out? It's a sobering thought. Uh. I can totally see a scenario where the hidden wilderness with Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and all that is set apart is closed off from the world so as to separate from Satan's release. If ever there was an event which might cause me to weep and gnash my teeth, then that would most certainly be the one. Here's another uh, passage. And this one comes from Matthew 22, 11 through 14. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how did you come in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The outer darkness has a second notable mention, and it involves a wedding feast. A man is found standing among the guests, but without the proper attire. When the king asks ask how he has arrived without a garment, the man is speechless. I am of the opinion that the wedding guests are dressed immortally with or in immortal attire with the Ruach HaKadosh, which, if I recall, was noted earlier when commenting upon Zosimus's visits. So, if you're in this group tonight or listening on YouTube land or wherever, uh, that was a past video I did on the Hidden Wilderness. Uh, I think I called it um, like the Hidden Wilderness and Satan or something like that. These would be the very people, uh, the very purple robes which Adam and Chua were vested in before, well, removing them. It would explain why the guest didn't have the faintest clue why he wasn't clothed in the like and may not have even known until that awkward fact was pointed out to him that he was, in fact, naked of the Ruach HaKadosh. It's not like he'd forgotten to pick the choir robe up from the dry cleaners. And anyways, it seems pretty clear that the wedding is taking place in one precise location. It definitely, it's definitely not heaven, and I would have said the whole of the earth was the venue at one time, but then after everything we've gone through, forming a mental image shouldn't be too difficult. One man is being removed in this scenario, and not millions upon millions or even billions of them. He had entered a premises where he didn't belong. Even gotquestions.org is pressed to admit that something is amiss in the hidden wilderness, uh, not the hidden wilderness, the outer darkness discussion. 
Nearly all theologians claim the outer darkness is a, ref- is a reference to hell. But apparently not, that's not the case this time around with the Intelnet Q&A people. Here is their direct quote. Perhaps the place of judgment is pictured as dark because the absence of God's cheering presence. It then follows with several Bible memory verses. For once I find myself in agreement with them, in, with God questions. Usually I completely disagree with them. The outer darkness is a place of consciousness. It isn't Sheol, and it doesn't appear to be the abyss. Nor does it sound like the lake of fire. Sheol is, is dropped into the lake of fire in Revelation 20.14 once and for all. Death itself is done away with. The destruction is irrevocable. It would be indeed strange for someone to be tossed into the lake of fire only to die and go to Sheol, but then be extinguished once and for all in the lake of fire. Nor have I ever seen a single reference to the lake of fire being a place of darkness. The Got Questions crew is absolutely correct in suggesting a place of spiritual darkness, kind of like the world we inhabit today. And like I said, they include Bible verses. Let's look at them. Uh, this comes from Psalms 104, 29-30. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your Ruach, they are created and you renew the earth. Good verse. The hidden, the hidden darkness is quite possibly a, a place, or I should say the outer darkness, but also the hidden darkness. It's quite possibly a place where Yahuwah Elohim hides his face. And that, that lines up with the idea of what I was putting forward with Zion, uh, the, the mountain of Zion, where I, I made the connection with Mount Sinai and the, the pillar, the cloud would come down, the pillar of fire, the cloud by night. And the same pillar was, if you recall, was complete darkness to Pharaoh and his army. And he came down to wipe them out in the Red Sea to corner them there. It was darkness for him. It was light for Israel, right? So you could have complete light on one side, complete darkness on the other. Uh, where was I? It may even be a state of mind. The reason I can say this is because of the passage which the Q&A, the Bible Q&A people follow up with. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that Elohim is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Yochanan and Rishon, that would be 1 John 1.5. A clear contrast to the hidden wilderness and the outer darkness is, is given in the stride of the individual. It is not where he is walking so much as in how he is walking. I've said it before, and I might as well do so again. People keep asking me for directions to the hidden wilderness. Read First Yochanan then. He's already given the coordinates. The problem is that very few people like the answer. We either live in accordance with the light now, or we lie to others as well as ourselves and thinking we will ever rise above this present darkness. And then we see in Yochanan Rishon, uh, 1 John 2, 11, one chapter over, but he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not whether he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. 
The problem with life in the outer darkness, if this is indeed the outer darkness, and I'm growing more convinced that it is by the moment, is getting people to recognize the street signs. The illiteracy is by design. A spiritually blind person is someone who has been excused from Yahuwah's favor. He walks about thinking he's inhabiting a spinning, wobbling globe, hurtling at hundreds or thousands of miles per hour through a vacuum of infinite space, because the truth of our cosmology as well as the greater realm has been removed from him, so that even the simplest observation regarding the flat horizon goes in one ear and out the other. The wool has been pulled over nearly everyone's eyes. It had to be that way, though. Yahuwah employs the use of darkness to conceal his holiness from those who'd rather not take part in his set-apart ways. It is a state of mind, but it is also a place. That is made abundantly clear in the closing chapter of the Bible. So, Revelation 22, 23 through 27, and then we'll see 22, 15. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon. We saw that. Why? The, the, the uh, coffee cup. And, you know, and maybe, maybe New Jerusalem will touch down in the center of the earth. I don't really know. Um, I have showed you that there is perhaps an argu argument to be made that New Jerusalem has already touched down and that it's on the earth. And uh, it's not in the center. It's along the crescent. In the land of uh, independence, or, or liberty, I should say. The land of liberty. True liberty. Let me start this again. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of Elohim did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light there. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. For there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination nor makes a lie. But they which are written in the Lamb's suffer of life. And then jump over to verse 15. Blessed are they that do his commandments. Well, there it is. That they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into that city. So, who has a right to the tree of life? Those who believe that Jesus historically existed? <clears throat> Wrong answer. The people who do his commandments. It couldn't be any more clear. For without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. Not just those who make a lie, but those who love a lie. Light that pipe and smoke on it for a while. <laughs> Whosoever loves a lie. We know a lot of people out there like that. The context of both of these verses is NY. That's not New York. I'm not referring to New York. I'm referring to New Yerushalayim. Nothing impure nor abominable can enter the city. And we have already seen those who lie in First Seal Canon. They are walking about in the darkness completely clueless to the light. The other thing which Yochanan mentions are the sorcerers, murderers, idolaters, whores, something about dogs, those are unclean animals, and there are the liars again. The liar, liar, pants on fire part once again reminds us that they may be self-illuminated, but, but they are still wandering around, slapping for a light switch in the dark. 
I'm getting the impression that they're still living. Are you getting that impression as I am? These aren't dead souls in Sheol. I have long felt this way. It, it's just, it wasn't until rather recently when I set out to uncover the outer darkness and I realized what is happening here. The sinners aren't just sitting around in a ditch upset at the fact that nobody is sending them an invite. No, it's not like that at all. After everything we've been through, I shouldn't even have to explain this to you. They haven't the faintest clue. All right, so hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Hopefully that was informative. And now... We're going to be covering something that has long, a topic that has long fascinated me. In fact, this is adapted from a paper I originally wrote back in 2018, back in the day. Uh, I don't think anybody read it back then. Uh, probably still haven't yet, uh, but um, uh, you will tonight. At least this. Is, so this has been added to the Wastelands of the Seraphim. And I'll quickly point out, too, that I think that the first paper I ever covered on the potential that the Millennial Kingdom happened was this one right here, Wastelands of the Seraphim. So if you're following along page 28 there, you see a lot of medieval art. Some of the, what's considered the most beautiful uh, uh, Middle Ages or Dark Ages uh, medieval art. Some of these I've had the pleasure of seeing in person as well. Look at the difference between medieval art and that of the Renaissance. Why don't you? I have just delivered something like two pages of surviving masterpieces for your consideration, all of which derive from the lost world of the Middle Ages. When I finally get around to the Renaissance, and I have covered much of it in the past, you will see that they are clearly at odds with its predecessor. Medieval art was intended to teach morality lessons using scripture as its peripheral vision, all of which directed the soul towards a heavenly pilgrimage, whereas the Renaissance gloried in the individual. This is Art 101 stuff, by the way, and I'm, I'm not making it up. You could, this is just the analysis that you'll get in Art 101 between the dark slash middle ages medieval artwork and the renaissance complete contrast and there's even a word for it humanism can be defined as an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to the human individual rather than the divine or supernatural that's just a nice way of saying the renaissance controllers sought to usurp elohim by igniting the divine spark within and they used art to do it. Another word deriving from the Renaissance is individualism. If that doesn't describe what we're seeing today in the world with like the, the transgender movement, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's all about creating the God within, right? You're manipulating nature within to become your own creation, to become higher than Elohim. So individualism, which, as you can probably already deduce, stresses the philosophical role of each person within the hieroglyph. The very word renaissance means rebirth. How many of you knew that? It was a movement which is said to have originated in Italy, but then swept like a wildfire across Europe, devouring nearly all facets of life, not only in art, but in the political arena as well. Propagandists like Francisco Petrarch, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci and Dante had a heavy hand in classifying the medieval period as a slow 
uh, uh, the medieval period as slow and dark. Get it? The Dark Ages. Simply adorable, especially since we just talked about the, uh, the outer darkness. And they're saying that the Dark Ages was, you know, the, the Millennial Kingdom was the darkness. We're not in the outer darkness now. They were in the darkness. For them, it was a stagnant period without growth, apparently without bathrooms, too. Education or innovation and an unwelcomed interruption from the pre-Christian world. To sum this up, mortals of the Middle Ages studied ancient literature to learn about the creator of heaven and earth, whereas the patron saints of humanism exhumed the ruins of Greece and Rome, the beast of old, so as to glory in themselves. And so now you can see here another page or two of uh, the, the stark contrast with Renaissance art. And I, I'm not even getting into Baroque art by this point. This is just straight up Renaissance. Eventually, every man has a decision to make. And I chose to go with only one page of Renaissance art rather than two. I don't know, perhaps I will add to the collection in, in a second draft. It just seems to me that the point has already been made. Rebirth art, that, that's what Renaissance means, rebirth art had a curious renewed interest in the pantheon of paganism. And taking one's clothes off was suddenly all the rage. We're talking naked dudes and boobs assaulting every passing patron, uh, patron from the canvas. And I haven't even gotten into Baroque art yet. Told a lot of naked dudes and boobs and that. Without even breaking down the esotericism as well as... Uh, I don't know why I say esotericism twice. Breaking down the esotericism as well as the esoteric... Oh, oh, the eroticism. Actually, it's getting late. I can't read. Uh, but that... <laughs> I, I wrote it right. Breaking down the esotericism as well as the eroticism. It's not difficult to see the blatant rebellion against the Most High Elohim that is taking place. What the occult managed to do, though, and rather brilliantly, is come right out into the open while repackaging it successfully as Christianity. But then something else changed between the centuries as well. Take a closer look at the collage on the left in errant contrast with the Baroque Luca or Lusa Gio, uh, Giordano's depiction of fallen angels on the right. Evil angels, as well as unclean Ruakoth, were often depicted as serpentine dragons or gargoyle-like devils during the Middle Ages. That all went away afterwards. Renaissance artists gave them buns of steel and chabangas. Check out their chiseled thighs. Where is Mikael, that would be Michael, where is Mikael the Archangel sending them to? The U.S. of Abs? I, I pause for your laughter there. We're filled with all sorts of Jungle, jungle Cruise jokes tonight. Only chubby cherubs are choosing to stay behind with the milk cart. For whatever reason, the art makers decided that fallen angels no longer looked like dragons. Is it any coincidence, then, that the general public ceased believing in dragons? Why the switch of perception? And among nearly all the artists, too. I think I know. There has ever only been two dominant transmitter devices for the spread of paranormal, 
perception on this side of the spiritual curtain. Words and images working together. FYI, I have just described the human brain. The left side of our brain handles reading, writing, and calculations in our day-to-day, and is referred to as the brains of the operation, where logic is concerned. The right side is visual, dealing more often than not in the images behind our artistic endeavors. Though it is also home to emotion, intuition, and the spidey sense, quote-unquote, which pries at our impulses. Cross those train tracks from the left side of town and you've entered the neighborhood of make-believe. And that's just the thing about our brain. The left and the right hemispheres work in synchronicity with the other, or in the very least are expected to. Though the left may be doing all the talking, the right turns to a storybook of images so as to inform its logical counterpart, thereby informing our very perception of truth. How the spiritual realm materializes itself within our mind's eye is based largely upon art, and the occult knows it. It's why they need pop culture. They need paintings and cathedral ceilings, though in today's terms they need toys, comic books, and movies as well as the news reporter's desk and the media teleprompter. The question you should be asking yourself is what an angel actually looks like, and who is it to say they don't have baby fat thigh rolls? I am inclined to believe the medievalists had it right. They were dragons, at least many of them, and I aim to show you. Of course, those would be the, the, the seraphim. Many of you were hoping I'd say they look like little green men. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the little green men never made an appearance at any time during the Middle Ages, at least... Maybe they did, or maybe they scrubbed it all. I don't really know. But I, I have yet to see any. If you have found the little green men in, in the, uh, the Middle Ages, be sure to let me know. Not even the Renaissance afterwards. They make no appearance. The little green men are a product of 1950s space-age propaganda, by which Soviet fear-mongering probably had something to do with it. The earliest reference that I can find derives from Washington Irving. Yeah, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle Guy. There were other authors imagining extraterrestrial beings through the centuries, but Irving appears to be the very first to describe the men from the moon as pea green. If you are capable of finding earlier references, then don't hold back. I want to know. To, <laughs> I want to believe. To Irving's credit, Mention was made in 1809, which just so happens to fall in the whereabouts of the mud flood, though perhaps more importantly, the release of the Watchers. The next notable mention doesn't happen for another century. All right, so you've got a hundred years to go by where we, there are no references. Maybe they were scrubbed. I don't really know. There are no references for a hundred years. So you guys all know Edgar Rice Burroughs, the creator and writer of the Tarzan books referred to the green men as well as the green Martian women when writing his first science fiction novel, A Princess of, Mar- a Princess of Mars, in 1912. Except that the green people were described as 10 or 12 feet tall on this go-around. Ag- Edgar got the skin color right, but they're hardly little. Come on, give it the program, Burroughs. I'm willing to accept that Irving and Burroughs were in the know, and they most certainly were, they were in the know, 
but not in the way that you're probably thinking. Something else is going on. So this was an interesting snippet I found on the internet. Folklore researcher Chris Aubeck has used electronic searches of old newspapers and found a number of instances dating from around the turn of the 20th century referring to green aliens. Albeck found one story from 1899 in the Atlanta Constitution about a little green-skinned alien, alien in a tale called Green Boy from Hurrah, Hurrah being another planet. So folklore researcher Chris Albeck found that the little green men uh, began cropping up the media starting at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, let's see. Okay, you know all that there. In the following decades, Hollywood and the comic book industry basically went ape crazy over the secondary color, making a craze out of it. And what do you think came of that? People reportedly began seeing the little green men from a not-so-distant planet. This is the left and the right side of the brain working together. Just so you are aware, I am not questioning the alien-angel connection. I, too, have seen an alien gray and stand by my close encounter. By the way, too, I've also seen a reptilian. That was, like, years ago, like 25 years ago, though. The, the experience on both accounts will not be easily forgotten. What I do question, however, is my own ability to accurately translate a higher dimensional being. Having pierced through the spiritual curtain which divides us and then broken down for somebody like me, incapable of recognizing shapes and forms beyond the third dimension. I mean, we're trapped in the third dimension. We could see things from other dimensions, but we can only translate it according to what we're imprisoned in, the third dimension. There are probably several theories on who the greys and the greens are and their existence in places like dumb tunnels. Perhaps they are the children of a recent incursion. I don't know. I wouldn't be the slightest surprised if that turns out to be the case. Many people uh, uh, speculate that. Try not to let what I'm stating enter through one ear and then right back out the other without swishing it around for a few. Sometimes these things need to marinate. Pop culture in league with the media created the alien phenomenon. Only then did they begin to materialize within public consciousness. Even the ab abduction idea was only recently incorporated into the alien experience. It all began with Barney and Betty Hill. On the night of September 19th, 1961, interesting enough, somebody in this group um, uh, mentioned that they interviewed uh, Betty Hill later in life. On the night of September 19th, 1961, the Hills became the first alien abductees in recorded history after having been followed home by a bright light on a rural highway. Their story, which they told first to a psychiatrist, then to the book and TV movie rights people, unleashed the floodgates of abduction stories to follow. For the longest time, the abduction experience appears to have been an American phenomenon. That's something that uh, ufologists don't always really talk about. Now they're everywhere, but for the longest time, it was only happening in America, which is very strange. Do yourself a favor and, and don't come to the land of the free and the brave unless you want your ass prodded in the middle of the night, that sort of thing. I'm sorry if that was vulgar, but come on, that's what was happening. I read one number, uh, what, I read one number that claimed a whopping 2.5% of Americans have had a close encounter with the mothership. Huh? That's three out of 100 Midwesterners. 
With numbers like that, I should be able to call for a raise of hands at the next county fair and, on a good day, nab at least 100 farmers who've been taken up, though I've yet to meet one. Where are all these people? Pop culture icon Jack Kirby created his fair share of quote-unquote real-world manifestations as well, the most popular of which is the face on Mars. His landed in a 1958 comic book. It would take everybody's favorite liars at NASA to manifest Kirby's doodle with their 1976 Viking compositing, which now everyone says is a hoax anyways, but it, 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 I think it was intended nonetheless. Kirby was born a Kurtzberg, by the way, in NYC of all places. His mother was a Bernstein, or a Bernstein. I checked. They were Jews of the Austrian variety. A few of, a few of you may be wondering what I mean by that. The Kurtzbergs may have originated from Spain, though Bernstein, or Stein, is a German name, telling us we have another puzzle piece to the Ashkenazi equation. Now, Jack Kirby isn't exactly a one-time offender. His uncanny ability to manifest a supposed reality from the comic book page is so recognized by the fanboys that I have seen it referred to as the Kirby effect. In his uh, OMAC One Man Army series, which I've never read um, except to research this, Kirby depicted an evil dictator named Kafka who was arrested in an underground bunker and then put on trial for a series of crimes. Oh, why does that sound so familiar to our generation? Conveniently replicating those of the Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein. Look, I, I totally get the difference between predictive programming on the part of the Intel department and the greater reality of our spiritual controllers pulling the strings from the rafters. I should have also mentioned up the should have also mentioned the ship that sank. What was it? The 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 I don't know, the Titan or something. That big ship that sank, and all of a sudden the Titanic uh, sank. You know, it was in the book, whatever. I wrote about that. Though they are also in bed with the other, uh, our spiritual controllers as well as the intel department. What I am trying to do here is show you that the higher dimensions employ the ever-evolving mediums of pop culture, backed no less by the occult, in order to manifest themselves into our own reality. There are enough modern examples to fill a book when it is the shift from medieval to renaissance thinking that requires my present concern. The physicality of the principalities, if I am phrasing that right, as well as the part they play in bringing the millennial kingdom to its swift conclusion, is what I'm mainly after in this particular exercise, um, the, the wastelands of the seraphim. I imagine the angelic world comes in a great variety of creatures, a whole zooful, Though when it comes to the class of seraphim, I have already given you the answer. They're dragons. The medieval artists got it right, and that says something about their spiritual insight. They were attempting to line the words up with the images. And then in the following pages, I will show you why I've come to that conclusion. That refers to my uh, paper on the wastelands of seraphim. We've already gone through that. That's a video you can watch, uh, though it's been greatly updated, and you could download that paper for yourself. All right, there's one more presentation I want to give tonight. Hopefully you guys are enjoying this. Got you know a lot of hopefully meaty information for you tonight. This is called Through the Looking Glass and the Singularity They Found There. Now, I was inspired to write this. This is a part of my Mandela Effect paper. 
uh, just because so many of you have been asking me about Project Looking Glass. And, you know, I, I, we've been talking about time travel for the last two weeks. And so I, you know, I dug in and I, um, here's my report for you guys. Hopefully I will get an A on this. Hopefully I will pass the homework assignment on Project Looking Glass. There is bad news and then there is good news. Believe it or not, I have just given them to you. And it's in the title. After everything that has already been spoken in this paper regarding time travel, that would be the Mandela Effect paper, particularly the manipulation of time, I was asked by my readers to address, address Project Looking Glass and then give my opinion on it. Very well then, here is my report. The bad news is that Project Looking Glass appears to be a very real government program in which the elites are manipulating time in such a way that the events therein bend a knee in their favor. I will give more details on what it all entails in a moment. Because the good news is that what they ultimately found, or is what they ultimately found on the other side, a singularity event. It just goes to show that no matter how much they tamper with string theory, all possible outcomes in every conceivable multiverse leads to one solitary event. Hmm. I wonder what that is. What we have before us is the story of free will versus predestination. And here is the ending. You may be able to make your own decisions in the day-to-day -day now. Or can you? But ultimately, everyone will stand in the same courtroom before the same judge. Now, Project Looking Glass is an obvious reference to Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There, the sequel to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Interestingly enough, the original title to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was Alice's Adventures Underground. Like the CIA's MKUltra program, Steeped in Babylonian magic as well as Egypt's Book of the Dead, Intel communities love Wonderland imagery and for good reason. Alice Liddell, whom the character of Alice was based upon, was related to Samuel Liddell Mathers, one of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn's three co-founders, believe it or not. The other two were William Robert uh, Woodman and William Wynne Westcott, all Freemasons, all three of them. That much is a given since Golden Dawn was a Masonic organization closely aligned with Helena Blavatsky and Theosophy. Other prominent members of the Golden Dawn include Bram Stoker and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, he comes up, all these people come up in this research often. Though the big one is none other than Mr. 666, Aleister Crowley, The Beast, and that's no coincidence. In truly, in true Crowley-esque magic, Alice is capable of creating a world in which everything is backwards. The Beatles would later perfect the process by way of backmasking. Meanwhile, in the, the mirror world, there are no straight logical paths as we know them by way of deductive reasoning. Events happen backwards or in reverse order. Rather than there being a cause and effect, the outcome happens first and then the cause of it. We have already been there and done that with CERN's part in the time travel narrative and something called retrocausality. We think of our timeline as linear when in all likelihood, this current short season of deception may be a mirror world created by wizards. 
And of course, it needs to be said. Aside from Carol's inquisitive collection of pedophilic photographs, it has been well noted that later in life, Alice Liddell exhibited the recognizable traits of someone who had been handled in her youth, sadly enough. Perhaps ceremoniously and as an early prototype to the monarch butterfly system. You might even say she quite literally took a tumble down the rabbit hole as becoming detached from her conscious self is concerned. Which, of course, that's what the, the metaphor is of down the rabbit hole. So we, we talk about that a lot in the truther community. Like, we go down the rabbit hole. Actually, it's a terrible metaphor because we're actually saying that we, are, we have gone through the process of being detached from ourselves. You know, our, our true self is up there and our conscious is down there. That's not a good analogy. The mirror as a source of magic and manipulation is a constant theme throughout mythology as well. Vulcan... Or like the like Spock from Vulcan in Star Trek. Vulcan was the Roman Elohim of fire, which included his qualifications as the master metalworker. As a side project, Vulcan forged a magic mirror which allowed him to gaze beyond the dimension of time into the future and the past. He then gifted it to Venus, big mistake. He gave it to the hussy. In turn, the Elohim of love cheated on Vulcan and with Mars. Boo. Using the mirror to calculate her means of not getting caught. We are constantly reminded that these are just mythological stories, but you and I know better. More than likely, the Romans possessed a similar device which allowed them to survey the best possible outcome for the empire's rise and expansion, as well as its health and longevity. Or they, or they knew of past civilizations, such as as an Atlantean one, which did. Perhaps one thing they all held in common, aside from a plethora of possibilities, was an inevitable singularity event. What I'm saying here is that it is quite possible that the Romans, according to their own mythology, uh, had a technology like this, where they could uh, look into some sort of mirror, a looking glass, and they could see all the possible outcomes, how they could use it to their benefit, but maybe it all led to a singularity event they couldn't escape. Rome would be destroyed one day. They couldn't escape that, no matter how much they tried. And that's the good news. Really, the scrying mirror can notably be found in nearly all cultures throughout history. Merlin was said to have uh, one such mirror, purpose with keeping Camelot on track, and John Dee, the original 007, which I mention every so often, communicated with angels through an obsidian stone of his own. And I, I've said this before, I, I've been able to see that obsidian stone in Oxford. You can go see it for yourself. An Elohim of the Aztecs, his name was Tezcatlipoca, whatever, the big T, I, I don't know how to pronounce that, was known as the Lord of the Smoking Mirror because of the polished obsidian through which he communicated. With Snow White, uh, this is one of the Mandela effects we talked about. The Brothers Grimm have their own magic mirror story to tell. I'll undoubtedly return to it another hour because the Walt Disney version has become another mugging victim of the Mandela effect. The interesting turn of events in their Germanic fairy tale is not so far removed from your cautionary stage play, typical of Greek or Roman mythology. We are introduced to a ruling sorceress who is nearly always ahead of the game because of her secret antiquitech device, which is hung upon the wall. Her, you know, of course, run by, by spirits, uh, of all things, too, which, you know, is probably how much of modern tech is as well. 
Her eventual destruction has little to do with her mastery over the craft, when in fact she has become too greedy, and we might add a little too clever for her own good. It is only in her obsession to eliminate Snow White, a young woman whom nobody seems to know about, which ultimately brings about her demise, thereby elevating the king's daughter to her kingdom. What sort of demographic do you suppose a story such as this one is aiming at? Greek and Roman mythology, and Homer in particular, were studied like the Bible among mystery school neophytes so as to teach them about the perils of discovering the God within. It seems to me that the occult is attempting to warn their own ranks regarding the dangers of greed and gluttony this time around in the Snow White story. Have your mirror and use it to your advantage, but not if unbridled passion should target restraint. And I'll again remind you that the only reason she ended up dying, the Wicked Queen, is because she became so obsessed with playing this game, you know, because she had this heads up, this advantage, and it brought about her demise. J.R.R. Tolkien presented us with another scrying mirror in The Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Galadriel employed a silver basin filled with water, which could show a person things that were and things that are and some things that yet may be, but which it is that he sees even the wisest cannot tell. The defining difference between Galadriel and the Wicked Queen of Snow White is that the ring bearer of Middle-earth foresaw what would happen to her if she took the one ring upon herself, which Frodo happened to be carrying. She would become a great dark, dark lord, presumably a mistress of Sauron. Galadriel was capable of defeating her temptation for greater power and was rewarded for it in the end. She got to go to the hidden wilderness. The same cannot be said of the ruling elite in the world we inhabit. Now, to the best of my knowledge, a grand total of three separate whistleblowers have come forward over the, the last 30 or so years concerning Project Looking Glass, though I tend to lean towards the possibility that they were released by our controllers to make the information known, meaning they were purposeful plants. The, the first is Bob Laser. I am including a picture of Laser from a more recent appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast. It was in 1989, however, that he initially hinted at what they were cooking up at Groom Lake in Nevada. According to Laser, he was hired in the 1980s to reverse engineer extraterrestrial technology. By the time we get to our third and final whistleblower, you'll see why it was actually Anunnaki technology. But let's just run with it for the moment. Uh, the work supposedly occurred at a secret underground base called S4, a subsidiary installation allegedly located several kilometers south of Area 51. When asked to describe Project Looking Glass, this is how he did, that is how he described it. Project Looking Glass dealt with the distortion, the fact that there is a time distortion, essentially looking back in time, and by that I do not mean looking back years ago to see the wagon train days. They're looking for distortion that are milliseconds in time, and what, the, what that was used for, I don't know. But that was just observing the time distortion, time dilation phenomena, the craft and operation. Uh, essentially, he knew very little, Bob Laser. 
That is all he initially offered on the project, which is to say we are given very little to work with. It should be noted that Bob Lazer was not a part of Looking Glass and therefore knew very little about it. He further explained that he had simply skimmed through a file on the project while employed at S4, small briefings really, and was attempting to convey his understanding of it. A far better summing up of the project was later given to Joe uh, Rogan in which he stated the following. Project Looking Glass had to do with time, any effects of time in the craft. Now, I don't think we're not talking about making a time machine like in science fiction, but we're talking about small distortions, intentional distortions of time and how that can be used as not as a, well, it was part of a weapon, probably, end quote. I particularly like the part where Laser revises his description of the top secret operation halfway through a statement. It happens all the time, and I even do it sometimes. He had started to describe looking glasses something other than a weapon, but then course-corrected his own understanding of what's going on because at the end of the day, it is very much a loaded gun when the with the smoking barrel pointed directly at us. Now, that is about all we are given from Bob Laser, though. So next witness. I wish I could find a better screenshot of Dan Barish, but this guy apparently has a penchant for old camcorders and low lighting. Well, there he is, Dan Barish, our second whistleblower. Barish took Project Looking Glass a step further and described the time manipulation tech as originating from ancient cylinder seals, which needed reconstructed in our modern day. The recording I am referring to comes to us by way of interviewer Carrie Cassidy of Project Camelot. She's devoted a lot of time to this. And here is what he has to say about uh, to her about it. Originally, it was a series of instructions for accessing the wormholes, which naturally pass in the hyperspace, which we find ourselves. And from there, they worked on the technology. They built the equipment from the instructions. After building the equipment from the instructions, they began to tweak it and find different things out about it. One of the things that they found is that they could actually use it as a peering portal, like a peering glass, if you will, reminds us of Snow White, to see different aspects of not only the future, but the past. When asked by Cassidy if the cylinder seals were of Sumerian origin, uh, Birish replied, I would say that they slightly predate Sumerian time frame, but that some of the information which came down from cylinder seals that slightly predated the Sumerian time frame were then recopied in Sumerian seals as well. And those cylinder seals, to the best of my knowledge, have all been obtained. Some of them from Iraq. Some of them from Egypt. Some of them from other countries where they were being stored. And this is literally like the... the uh, the plot line to uh, Stargate, if you ever watched that. It's pretty much the same thing. Birish often described the looking glass tech as a Stargate and a portal, though he doesn't do so in the provided quote, but he regularly refers to it as a Stargate. And anyways, the right uh, that right there is our Anun Anunnaki connection. Bob Laser may have spoken about aliens, but Birish had the insight to assign ancient aliens as agents. The ancient alien discussion is 
practically a literary genre by this point. Though, as my reader already knows by now, our attention is ultimately directed to the Watchers episode in the Book of Enoch. For those of you still needing caught up to speed, the Anunnaki Watchers arrive from the starry realm to rule over a pre-Diluvian humanity, bringing with them the mysteries of heaven. Well, the magic mirror appears to be one of them. All the New World Order had to do was assemble these cylinder seals uh, held in various regions of Mesopotamia, probably under the direction of the same Anunnaki, who have finally been released from their underground prison in this short season. The third and final whistleblower is somebody named Bill Wood. This guy is really interesting. He is shown here being once again interviewed by Kerry Cassidy of Project Camelot. Slightly better lighting this time around, but we can do better. Among his talking points in all of this was the 9-11 false flag attack, specifically that a Tomahawk missile was used on the Pentagon, and he would know something about that, wouldn't he? Bill Wood was in the U.S. Navy from June of 1991 until June of 2001. He left, interestingly enough, right before the 9-11 attacks, working with Tomahawk missiles as, as, member, as a member of SEAL Team 9. At some point during the 90s, probably during the Clinton administration, Wood claims to have been contacted by the White Hats, as he calls them, whom he also refers to as Oath Keepers, uh, the good guys with top-level security clearance, in his words, also adding they derived from the military but any number of alphabet agencies, and that they're furthermore the patriots whom our government would classify as terrorists. I, for one, will reserve my own judgment on who the good guys are and have, in fact, already given that opinion when commenting upon the checkerboard dualism of Kek, the androgynous deity of Egypt. I think we went over that a couple weeks ago. The wizards of our realm may assign the left and the right hands to light or contrarily to the opposing darkness, but in the end, they are all practitioners of magic. And if I'm not mistaken, Bill Wood was brought in to help manipulate the construct to the advantage of his employers. Let's not overlook that fact. Perhaps I am wrong, and he was really working as a double agent of sorts, intending to find out information about their schemes and frustrate, perhaps even dismantle their operation, though I wouldn't hedge my bets on it. I'm getting ahead of myself again. Wood's involvement with the Looking Glass Stargate was in dealing with what he described as the 2012 problem, so follow along. And here is a, basically a whole page of his direct quote. The timelines converge on that point in point in time in 2012. And when you know enough about the Stargate projects and the Looking Glass project to know how string theory works and the possibility of possibilities works and how making one choice over here doesn't necessarily mean that the other choice couldn't exist at the same time. But once you get your brain wrapped around the subject, you find out that the at the end of 2012, and in, e in an easy way to put it, the choices that we make become less and less consequential to the future. And eventually, we're pushed into this bottleneck of time, no matter which choice we make. And that's important to the people that had access to Looking Glass, because they would use Looking Glass knowing the choices that they would make, and the future would pop up. And when we started using a, a computer to say, well, if we make this choice, it's 79% possible that this scenario happens and 23% are possible or whatever, or, you know, I'm using round numbers, that this scenario would happen. The understanding at the time was that 
uh, was that was realistic. However, if you go down the road further and, f- and free will continues to exercise itself on this game, that 79% possibility sometimes b- changes very, very fast. But if you look at the situation in a point of time, it seems very realistic that that's the greatest possibility. What happened was people, very smart people, began to figure out that something big was coming. Something so that all the possibilities of all the future scenarios, of any choice, any possibility that was fed in and observed through the looking glass, inherently ended up in the same future and no decision, no possibility change past a certain point. That's the big secret. And so, summing this up, beginning with the ominous date of December 21st, 2012, the elite discovered that all possible outcomes within the free-ranging multiverse of string theory ultimately led to the same end game. Something was coming beyond the horizon which didn't work to their advantage, and there is no escaping it. What is this singularity which would hint it at? He couldn't outright say. It's not like he didn't ask his employers about it, though. Rather difficult solving a problem regarding the inevitable contraction of timelines if he's not given the precise details. Everyone who has that information, he quickly adds, are sent into a blind panic, and this is what he says. It's been forecast. It's been predicted. It's been fed to us in a slop and a slop trough of what they want us to believe will happen. However, they don't have control over what happens. They only have control over the reaction. And it seems that no matter what they try to do to cause their desired reactions, it's going to have an opposite effect. It's an evolution of consciousness that cannot, will not, and no matter what decisions or possibilities are injected into the equation, eventually it all resolves down to us all learning the truth and becoming aware of this massive dam of lies that has been built that keeps that keeps us from knowing massive volumes of information that we should otherwise possess. To the best of his knowledge, and from all the intel that he was capable of gathering, the post-2012 event is what Woods believes to be the awakening process. Mass consciousness. At first, he thought it was the end of the world, which he was called, which was called into, which he was called into frustrate. But now, according to his interviews, he believes it's the end of their world. And think of all that has happened since 2012. In 2001, the blinding arrogance of our controllers, and in fact, their total disdain for the slaves they rule, rule over, was put on full display with the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York City. They went full retard and hoped nobody would notice. Or you might say in biblical terms, pride goeth before the fall. Only afterwards were they let in on the true consequence of their actions. The singularity event will be one in which humanity wakes up to their lies. Actually, there are two given scenarios. One synopsis, according to Wood, is one which, would, which most people would understand to be an ascension or an evolution of consciousness that brings humanity out of the cocoon and turns us into a butterfly. It's a little creepy knowing about the monarch butterflies, but whatever, let's just go with that. It's an age of Aquarius thing and what they're aiming for. The best they can do is continue to lie and lie and lie 
as any pathological liar would know to do. That's what they do very well at. Hoping to cover their tracks while ironically waking... I put wakening. Ironically wakening everyone up to their deception in the process. Thereby making their psychological operations a self-fulfilling prophecy. Timeline 2, however, enlists some kind of major global catastrophe that drives the elite underground in hopes of survival. And we know what this event's going to be. And now you know why they're building the underground tunnels. Our controllers have foreseen what is coming. Either way, the war is already won. They lose. And he says, It will be a new beginning, an end of this reality. The beginning of something that we can't even possibly understand based on the level of our beliefs currently. But when all that information comes flooding out, there's going to be no denying what's true and what's a lie or what's illusion. We won't have the choice to believe that 9-11 happened because of a bunch of terrorists, because we'll know exactly what happened. Basically, what we're experiencing right now is two master chess players sitting at the board. I found this part really interesting. One of them looks down at the board and sees that he's in checkmate in seven moves. And he looks across at his opponent and he knows that his opponent sees it too. So there's no getting out of it. So at this point, the loser can only prolong the game. The game, both players know, uh, both players know the game is over. Yeah, Bill Woods actually went there. He described his story in terms of a celestial chess match between two opposing forces. He doesn't outright say who they are, but he needn't have to. You know and I know, and very soon everyone will know as part of the singularity event. Based on the very rules of the game, the bad guys have already lost, and the good guys have won. Sure, there's moves left on the table, but those moves are being forced by the victorious player. Many would suppose the loser should just give up, but that goes against the very nature of the game. The only way to avoid the inevitable, checkmate, is if the winning player makes a mistake. And so, for the individual bleeding out, there is always hope. Best to keep at it until the all-consuming fire of Elohim rains down, bringing a swift end to their schemes. December 21st, 2012. I don't know if you recall where you were on that particular date. I actually remember uh, driving in the car and, and uh, listening to it on the radio. The Miami, the world came to an end, but it happened to be the winter solstice. That's the very day when the sun sinks to its lowest point on the southern horizon. The sunlit hours are cold and short. It remains there for three days before rising again towards its annual northbound trajectory. Not a coincidence either that C.S. Lewis, I'll say that again, C.S. Lewis, had Aslan die and resurrect again during the winter solstice in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How do I know that? I don't. The suggestion is simply given to us for anyone paying attention. Lewis goes out of his way to bring Christmas to Narnia on the very day when the hundred-year spell of winter is broken. The witch protesting, invoking her rights to the deep magic at the dawn of creation. As the new of the deeper magic before the dawn of time. I think that was supposed to be one sentence right there, and somehow that became two. In one swift move, he defeated her. 
did Lewis take inspiration from Satan's short season in Revelation 20? Again, his death and resurrection coincided with the winter solstice, thereby heralding in a new Camelot age. Is that what happened in 2012? Now, I wanted to write more on this. That's all I have. That's the end of tonight's presentation. But I, I wanted to talk more about singularity because when you get into singularity, when you start looking at it from the occult's perspective, it's very wishful thinking. And one of my favorite um, references to singularity comes from the, the 1980s Jim Henson movie, uh, which was also a George Lucas movie, I believe, uh, The Dark Crystal. And in it, if you remember, there's the, the there's like the, the good guys and the bad guys, and a thousand years have gone by. There's your thousand years again. And because of the shattering of this crystal, it created the, these these this checkerboard dualism of the good guys and the bad guys. And the, the bad guys are, are are like the watchers. They're the evil fallen angels. And if I'll give away the ending. You guys might want to cover yours. I'm sorry if you haven't seen it. But the ending is is that there's a singularity event in which the, the bad guys and the good guys become united again into one creature. And they become a new creature and they ascend back up to heaven. And that is the, the, the idea of singularity. That is their goal. That the Watchers go. If you recall the Watchers, it said in Enoch that uh, they could no longer look up to the heavens. And they pleaded to Enoch to take up their case as their lawyer. And Yahuwah wouldn't have. He's like, nope, not coming back here again. So they are not able to look up and see the heavens. That's the goal of singularity. Even though the Watchers are like, yeah, we really screwed up. Um, and uh, we sinned royally. Uh, we are hoping that it's going to turn out all right for us in the end. That he's going to take us back. We'll be redeemed. That's the singularity event they're hoping for. It's not what we're going to get, though. I mean, we know what the singularity event is. Uh, no matter how much they manipulate time to their advantages, uh, try to throw us in cycle loops or whatever they're trying to do, um, New Jerusalem is coming down. Or at least I should say the all-consuming fire of Elohim, however you want to slice that cake. Uh, the all-consuming fire of Elohim is coming down, and they're not escaping it. And death itself will be thrown in the lake of fire. So that's all I have to give tonight. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that, and um, I'm all talked out. Uh, hand it over to you guys, over to the jury, the defense rest. Well, I've got to say that it's just a, a never-ending source of information with you, Noel. I mean, I am glad to say that every week you literally blow my mind with this stuff. And uh, I'm just so glad that, you know, you're not throwing out opinions and, you know, just off-the-wall stuff that you actually have you know, historical literature and things of this nature to back up what you're teaching, and I, I thoroughly enjoy it. I mean, like I say, every week you just blow me away, and I, I love it, love being part of the group, and I hope we can just continue forever, at least until when the Father comes back and cleanses it all and takes us home. Well, thank you, John. That was quite the ringing endorsement, wasn't it? And um, a lot of people ask my opinion on things a lot, and you know, you talk about wild theories or out there stuff, and a lot of times I'm just very slow at getting to this stuff because I'm like, I need to find some biblical backing. And so when we're dealing with like Azareth or the, you know, Tartaria, people have been asking me for years, no, what do you think about um, Israel's or Tartaria? Is that Israel? And I'm like, I don't know. I got to find a scripture. Help me find a scripture. So, um, it was actually uh, Dean. Uh, he was he helped me look and and he's like, hey, I think I found it. 
And I give him, I'm giving him credit for that. I'm like, there it is, right there in Second Ezra. Says it. We can locate it on maps. We know where this place is. It's Tartaria. Israel is Tartaria. Um, and so it takes. It's taken me what three to four years to get to that. Um, so all these things are things that you know I consider for a long time. And um, yeah, I appreciate everyone's patience while I look this stuff up. But also, I appreciate people who send me information and just little snippets. I've been getting a lot of emails this week. Just people, this hey, have you seen this movie over here? Look at that little quote and that you know that kind of stuff. It's all helpful. Well, you know, I love the part uh, showing the distinction between, you know, the, the Twin Towers falling in 2001, because I, I remember that crystal clear, and I believe the whole entire story. You know, I, I didn't doubt it, but then it seems as if in 2012, like, you know, you're saying this singularity all comes together, gets bottlenecked, and it, it really does seem to be that is the time frame which people started, uh, you know, a great awakening, I, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, and it seems to be around that time when everybody started questioning all these things. And I can relate to that, really. Uh, th those two points in time really do have a, a, a huge, uh, uh, for lack of words, a, a foundational impact on what's going on in the world today. Because they were, they were major turning points. They really were. I was talking to the the group before we started. Uh, I finally got around to watching the documentary, uh, What is a Woman? And it is an incredible documentary. And uh, it came out a year ago. I totally miss it when it came out because obviously, you know, I had a baby born and you get distracted and you don't always see all the things coming out. Um, and I want to show it to this group. Uh, for those of you, if you haven't seen it, like wait around two or three weeks and I want to uh, uh, show it one Sabbath and we can discuss it. And it was mind blowing that the dude goes around all over the country. He goes to a woman's march in Washington, DC. He's on a megaphone. He's like, can anybody here tell me what a woman is? And they're just getting angry at him and chasing him. Up. Like, how dare you ask what a woman is? We're not telling you what a woman is. Cause they didn't know what a woman was at a, at a woman's march. And he's going all over the country and nobody could answer the question. What is a woman? And it is absolutely incredible that here we are in 2023 and we are living in this delusional existence where the, the, the left is doubling down and they're just they're going off into this abyss of not just, you know, altering what it is to be created in the image of Yah to the point you don't even know what a woman, you can't define a woman anymore. You cannot say XX chromosomes. You can't say that. That's not a woman. Um, you know, a, a woman, you know, is not someone who has a uterus. A woman is not someone who gives birth to babies. You know, and excuse my language, a woman is not someone who has a vagina. That That is not a woman anymore. They, they can't tell you what a woman is. Now, I bring this up because it's, it's the same thing happened. Right around 2012, some people might say 2009, 2010, but right around then is when this great mass awakening happening. The, 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 the flat earth came about, the, the, what Rob Skiba used to refer to as the Ephraim awakening. That took off uh, just tons of just people coming to consciousness. But on the flip, you have like people veering off into this total fantasy world. I mean, you guys were there through COVID and the, the imaginary 
invisible enemy that everyone was just petrified of and going around wearing masks because they were so afraid of this disease. And um, and then you have, you know, they're all like, they don't even know what a woman or a man is anymore. And they're, so it, you have like two things happening. You have these roads diverging where there are a great number of people coming to, to awareness of truth and the deception. And now, and then a, a whole bunch of others are just going into the abyss. But I want to point out here uh, that the ultimate truth is our creator, Yahuwah, and his set-apart ways, right? And taking that narrow path. That is the ultimate truth. And we have, that is something that has been coming to a lot of people's minds uh, recently. And people can be enlightened and come to many truths and still deny that truth, okay? So I just want to, that, that that is the ultimate truth that we're aiming for, okay? Not, not... Uh, why they you know, the the terrorist passport survived on 9/11, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, Daily Wire. Um, what is a woman? And I, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be uh, showing that to this group in a couple weeks. I think it's a a great film for us to look at. We looked at, uh, was it a few months ago, the the Died Suddenly documentary, and I thought that was another great one as well. And uh, I love to just experience it as a group and talk about it. Anyways, what were you guys' thoughts? Anybody else? I know. I loved the thought that you put forth with the Renaissance art about the occult managed to come right out in the open while pack repackaging this art as Christianity. Because I've always been intrigued with this art and wanted to see much of it myself and never made sense. But that is exactly what they have done. So... I love what you do. I have to say, I have to agree with who was talking earlier, John, who said, you blow our minds. I was talking with Heidi two weeks ago, and it's like, you know, you, you expand our brain so much. And so much of us, I think, are silent and don't comment because we're so busy picking up our brain pieces all over the yard and the house because you just blow our minds. And I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you again, Nikki, for that wonderful uh, endorsements. And what Nikki was talking about, about the art, just to kind of expand on that earlier too, is that, um, you know, when we look at art from the, the Middle Ages, medieval period art, it's all biblically focused, right? I mean, it's giving you lessons as to how you are to align yourself with the holiness of Elohim, um, that he is the standard by which we fall short. And they would show many, you know, different depictions of, of moral lessons through the Bible. And one of the interesting things about when you look at Renaissance art and then Baroque art is that they would show biblical scenes, but then they would mix like pan in there and, you know, the, the Zeus raping Europa. And you just go through it there and it's just, it's like, yeah, they were successfully packaging um, the occult, the mystery religions into the Christian faith, and they were calling it Christian. And I, I you know, I made the, 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 I guess the boob joke, whatever, but my wife got so embarrassed because when we were going through the Louvre in France, we were going all through Europe and checking out this artwork. And I just, <laughs> I, I would tell her, I'm like, there would be these huge canvas pieces. I mean, gloriously beautiful canvas pieces and uh, like war scene, just a random war scene with like a thousand people in it. And I would tell my wife, I'd say, somewhere in here, there's some boobs. I'm going to look, I'm going to find it. And 
lo and behold, they're just somewhere in, they had to put it somewhere in the middle of a battle scene. There's some topless woman walking around. I'm like, oh, sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But um, yeah, there's a lot of that as well. You know, everyone started taking their clothes off in the Renaissance, whereas everyone was very, very modest and keep their, kept their clothes on in the Dark Ages. Yeah, did you guys have any thoughts on the, uh, Marianne is talking about the Outer Darkness. I'm okay if you guys come to a different, if you're like, no, you're wrong, we're not in the Outer Darkness, I'm fine with that. Uh, I'll tell you that a couple years ago, if you would have asked me, I would have said uh, the Outer Darkness, I'd probably even use a passage from the Book of Enoch when um, Enoch goes beyond the, the firmament into the chaos and the void, and he goes into a place of darkness where he sees one of the, um, the, I think the planets he sees like one of like the like a a star that kept not its first estate that was a wandering planet or a wandering star which is a planet uh, rolling around in the 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 flames in turmoil and he says he he sees a woman there that was a siren which is a really interesting way to phrase that that the that the sirens are leading you into the 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 fire and I would have said well that's the outer darkness and it might very well be um, but I think that there is good reason to to say that no, actually, the the outer darkness that Yahusha was speaking about was in reference to his kingdom, and that there was a place that people were thrown out of. And just so you guys know, just so we're clear on this, um, I I have pushed away from a lot of my position on the millennial kingdom on where it was. Uh, the hidden wilderness has radicalized, I just radically changed my thinking on all of this. Um, and so I think in terms of history, let's, let's just take the thousand year chunk of time from 500 to 1500. Okay. Let's just say that that was the millennial kingdom. We don't really know. I, I don't really know. I'm just putting that out there. 500 to 1500. Okay. On the official timeline. And that there was something spiritually really going on in the world. Um, you know, there was Tartaria, there was these beautiful cathedrals and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think that the hidden wilderness is where it's at. And I think that that is where the uh, millennial kingdom happened. That was the, the place to be with the giant grapes and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so the kings of the earth were going there, stuff like that. But the, the consciousness of what was going on, the spiritual consciousness, opened and closed with the hidden wilderness. When it was revealed... You know, the rest of the world knew about it, obviously, and it was closed off and they forgot. They don't remember anymore. Um, and so uh, I kind of think that maybe a lot of um, there are there is some truth to official history. Maybe people, you know, this was a violent place. Maybe people were killing each other. Maybe people were choosing uh, not to live according to the kingdom of heaven, if you guys get my drift. So um, it's in a way that this was kind of always the realm of the outer darkness even if the hidden wilderness was exposed to people at one time. It was always a place where people could choose to sin. I absolutely resonate, Noel, with that notion that this is a place where people choose to sin and that we were born into it. Um, I had mentioned earlier when you were talking in your um, paper, you know, in the chat, that... <clears throat> Even as a child, I remember saying things like, okay, if you were disobedient and you didn't know the scriptures, how come I can be blessed? Like, how is it I get to understand these things and you don't? And 
it would just infuriate like the pastor or the whoever I was talking to. Um, and, you know, of course, I followed like the way of the world and just jumped into Christianity, jumped into religion and just tried to find Yeshua everywhere I went. But, um, you know, I've always had this notion reading the Ten Commandments. And that's I think that's why Yeshua brought me back in to the Sabbath with the Ten Commandments, because when I read that your children, I am a jealous God, right? And I will punish the children to, to the third and fourth generation to, you know, bless the children of many generations, the thousandth generation, right? Like that, that sort of notion has always just sat with me a lot. Oh, and if anybody's wondering, I have this Mago plastic thing in my mouth to help my jaw align. And so I slur and I talk funny with my S's. I apologize. Anyway doesn't stop me from talking. <laughs> it just slows me down a little bit. Um, I had this conversation with my neighbor, kind of going back to what you were saying two steps before. And they are a totally like worldly, love is love, transgender. They have a transgender child. They have a gay child. They have a child who's going insane. And anyway, they have all these weird things. And we go on this block and I listen to her talk. And she talked and talked and talked. And at the end, I said, listen, I am in the covenant of Yeshua HaMashiach. It's written for me and I'm in covenant with him. But I understand where you're at and I love you and I love your children. I don't agree with anything you've said, but I love you. Do you, do you get that? And she looked at me and she was, and I don't even know if she really knew, but we're still kind of friends with the kids at a distance and with boundaries. Um, but she still messages me, Hey, can your, you know, your child play with so-and-so? And I'm like, well, we'll see, you know, we're kind of sick today, but, um, I feel like there's this human interaction. There's like all of these things going on and there's this human interaction that's always missing, you know? To, to go on that walk with your neighbor who is like got the, you know, the gay kid, the trans kid and the kid who's on drugs because he tried to kill himself. Like, you know what I mean? There's a there's this human interaction that has to happen, especially with us moms. I mean, all this stuff's super cool and interesting. But when it comes down to that nitty gritty, it's always about do you love your neighbor? Do you love your enemy? You know? So anyway, that's just my heart and soul. I probably won't be able to speak again tonight because I have children everywhere and I just came and hid in their bedroom. So um, I will happily listen to the rest of the conversation. Thank you, Stephanie. And Sarah E. wants to talk before uh, you jump in. Um, I will. An interesting comment was made by Michael in here. And he asked a question. I, I'm bringing this up now because if I don't, I'm glad I'm glad he asked it because if 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 I don't respond to this uh, or ask the question, then it will come up by basically everybody from from here throughout eternity. And he says, are we weeping and gnashing now? That's a good question. Because if you're in the outer darkness, you're supposed to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that received a lot of responses from different people. Uh, everything from many are, most definitely. Uh, those who do not know, yeah, definitely are. Uh, and Douglas says, my dentist would say so, ha, ha, ha. Uh, 
and what I would like to point out is that I think that the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth seems to be a reference to the it seems to be an ongoing thing, but there seems to be directly referencing a generation that is when the kingdom either arrives or whatever. There's an event where they are thrown out of the kingdom. They are thrown out of the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing teeth. So if you basically were a good example of this is like the uh, the, the the five foolish uh, virgins and the five wise ones. There was weeping and gnashing of teeth for those that didn't make it the cut. Like they see the party happening. They see the doors. They see the doors get locked and they're on the outside and they're not in there. They know what they missed. And so I could see that there was a – I could see a generation, I don't know, 200 years ago, 500 years ago. I don't know when. But a generation of people where they were literally weeping and gnashing their teeth at what they lost. They rebelled against the kingdom. And then uh, Yahuwah's like, or you say Yahusha, Hamashiach is like, fine, I'll give, you, I'll give you the desires of your heart. Here you go. And he gets up, picks up, closes, closes shop, at least, you know, puts the darkness there. And they just, they're weeping, gnashing teeth, mourning. Um, I, I could see that happening. So anyways, uh, Sarah, you wanted to say something. Oh, okay. She says her microphone isn't working. So she says, my question was, what do you think about the outer darkness being a different dimension from the millennial kingdom? I, that's interesting, right? Since we've been talking a lot about that, uh, different dimensions recently. And uh, honestly, I'd never thought about that. So you just said it. So I don't have a response. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? Because that's a really good question. It's a good question. I don't have an answer for it. Well, okay. I guess I can chime in for a second before we check out here. Uh, I, I think basically it's all spiritual. I, you know, when uh, when we read, for example, the the parables, I'm going to paraphrase this, you know, when the Messiah was teaching to the masses and he literally said when he was explaining it to his apostles, because they pretty much after his over, they're like, what in the world are you talking about? We don't understand what you're saying. And he said, well, not one word do I speak to the masses with understanding. For you, you know, basically he's saying, here, I'm going to explain it to you. And I think there's two different places where the same thing happens. And he literally explains his parables that he spoke in. And both of them had spiritual meaning. And once you read his explanation of the parables, that it was actually spiritual, that really opens up your eyes to a lot of different things all throughout Scripture. Uh, and, you know, without, I guess, uh, saying, having your spiritual glasses on, you're not going to get any of it. You know, it's, it's like, I, it, it's like this phenomenon where people grab the Bible and unlike any other book, they will just open it up at random anywhere and they start reading it and they're just completely lost. I'm like, no wonder you, you don't do that with any other book. Any other book you'll go, you start at the beginning and you read from the beginning to the end. But that's, see, they don't have their spiritual glasses on. They're blinded. They're deceived. And uh, I'm starting to ramble here. But the, I, I think that the majority of the teaching that the, the prophets and the apostles through Messiah 
spiritual. And if you don't have those spiritual glasses on, you're not going to understand any of it. And I think this outer darkness is a spiritual realm that if you are not following his law, his rules, his Torah, and observing his things, you are in outer darkness. And once, because I think I spent the majority of my life in that outer darkness, but once you have the spiritual glasses put on and you begin to see these things, a peace comes over you and it's like, it doesn't matter anymore what happens. You know, you think about it, but you don't worry about it anymore, you know, because it's all part of the plan. You know, in the end, we're going to win. You know what's coming, you know, everything will happen. And it, it brings a peace like there's nothing else like it in the world, you know, and it's so hard for us to try to take the scales off and the blinders that people have on because of the darkness of this world that they're living in and that always blows my mind when you can i've got a friend i can relate to this right now because i have a friend i'm working on almost daily to try to help remove these scales from his eyes and this indoctrination that this dark world that we live in has put up on him and it is so hard I mean, it's like one little piece at a time gets peeled off and he begins to see, but no, no, but I, I can't see that. I, I just don't get it. And I'm like, I, why? Why is it so hard? You know, because, because the power that Satan has been given to deceive the entire world in this day. I hope I didn't ramble on too much and explain some things going on with the spiritual no, uh, John, that was really good. Thank you. Uh, Mary Ann wanted to jump in. Uh, I wanted, before she does, I wanted to just comment on some of the exchange going in here, which is really fascinating. And it's talking about, uh, you know, of course, whether or not we're in, in the, outer dark, uh, the, the outer darkness or not. And one of the things that is Sarah is saying in here, uh, Sarah E, that uh, she says that she wasn't obedient and that it all changed for her in 2017 and that she said, literally, I had all the scales removed at once. All right. Now, um, and th the context of this was, you know, obedience and that kind of stuff. Now, she chose obedience. All right. Now, I, I want to point this out that we talked about the scales being removed. For me, that it was literally scales like that. It was literally a light switch. I was... I've told you guys this before. I was in my church Sunday morning, April 2015, uh, and I am dedicating my twin boys, Eric and Ira. Uh, I'm standing there on a row in front of the church. Um, uh, a pastor friend is next to me dedicating his daughter, and there's a few others. And a pastor is up there praying for us. I don't know anything he's saying. I don't know anything he's praying for because I heard a loud voice who I take to be the most high and it was it was like biblical voice out of heaven and it, 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 the, it the actual words were wake up just boom wake up and this little light switch I that's all I could describe it a little light switch went on boom from darkness to light like that and I was looking around like a deer in front of headlights holding one of my sons and looking at everyone in the crowd going did anybody else hear that did anyone else see that? Was there light switches that went on here? Because And everything changed overnight. Now, I say this because I have seen this happen with other people too. I have seen other people presented with the truth. And they see it. They recognize it when they see it. And they start going into a panic mode because they don't like 
it's almost like um, I, I've said this, you know, many times over that the the argument over the flat Earth versus globe Earth has nothing to do with the shape of the Earth. Very little, I should say. It has everything to do with the shape of humanity. Because people, it's not hard for a lot of Christians and others to look in the Bible and go, yeah, it's a flat earth book. It's not that hard for them to do it. What they, they start freaking out because they look at the globe and everything contained within the globe, and they realize they don't want to give that up. They don't want to have to give up their life. They don't have to give up the idols that they love. And so I have seen people wake up and the scales fall off their eyes and then they quickly put it back on again. And that's a very dangerous position to be in because um, Yah does hand us over to the desires of our heart. He's like, that's what you want. I'll give you the delusion. You can have delusion. Um, and um, so, yeah, if, if we are in the darkness... Um, yeah, I can get show us the truth, and we could choose to stay in the darkness. But, okay, someone else is going to talk. No, I was just going to say on what you're saying there. Yes, I mean, like when I read, you know, the fourth commandment, or the the Sabbath commandment of remember, it was such an honorable voice. I was like, why did my children hear that? Right, sitting at my kitchen table. What if? Because we're coming up on Passover. What if this community, and I've had this idea, this thought, this what if thought in my head for a while, what if we pray for those around us to come to that conclusion, to hear that voice, be it a still small voice or a loud, audible, like in your face, cut through all the crap, right? Kind of voice. Because that's how it felt like for me. It did not feel like a still small voice. It was more like, knock me on my feet. I'm off my chair. Like, oh, right? What if we prayed for the people in our lives and we just took like the small circle around the people in our lives to have that encounter with the Ruach, with the Father, with Yeshua coming down and saying, listen to me, listen to my voice. It's been speaking for eternity and pray for them by name every day, right? And I've prayed for multiple people and I've seen amazing changes. But what if we took this time, this next year as a community, there's what, 50 people in the chat listening what if 50 people took that time and said every single day when i wake up i'm going to pray for these 10 people i'm going to pray for these 20 people or these 12 or whatever um and there's easy ways to do that you just record your voice post it on a youtube private thing and listen to it every single day and just press play and then you can listen to yourself praying for them, agree with yourself, and then pray it out loud at the same time. So this is how I memorize scripture, actually. Um, but what if we did that for praying for those people around us to see what we have seen, right? The desperate measure of our heart so they can see too and be brought into the kingdom, right? Because that's the whole point is to bring those that we love and those around us and those that we don't love yet into the kingdom that they may see so anyway that's my another thought i've had tonight thank you stephanie um i before i responded uh marianne was asking to speak are you still here Yes, sorry. It, it took me a second to unmute here. So yeah, I had a couple of things. Um, and this was the outer darkness part is just something I'm going to dig more into. Um, but thinking about, um, and I, I think it makes sense that we could be in the outer darkness. Um, and with regards to where, where the um, rain is now, where the city is now, I don't really know. I don't have an answer for that. But it just reminded me of um, 
just thinking about how we all like obviously all the all of us here have come to Torah and have you know heard you know like you actually heard audibly Noel to wake up and many of us heard that whether it was audibly or not you know but we were kind of heard that and responded to it so it, I read this recently in Isaiah chapter 2 and it was talking about in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahuwah is established on the top of mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it I don't know that could be about the millennial kingdom but after that it says and many people shall come and say come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahuwah to the house of Elohim of Jacob and let him teach us his ways and let us walk in his paths for out of Zion comes forth the Torah and the word of Yahuwah from Yerushalayim so I think the interesting thing here and this was just just made it like it just hit me when I read this recently it was just that the Torah comes out of Zion and Zion, you know, it, that's where it comes from. So all of us that have heard it have heard it coming from Zion. Like it just to me just like stuck out that like that's a personal connection. It's like, you know, I pick up a phone, I call my mom, I'm personally calling her. She receives that call to me. Like I just saw it in a different way that like Zion, wherever it is right now, wherever they're established, has made these calls to us. And like all of us that heard the Torah, that's like a connection because it tells us there that that's where the Torah comes out of. So if we've heard it, we've woken up. That's just like, I don't know, it just felt like a personal connection. Like lately, I've been taking the word. A lot of the prophecies are, you know, sometimes figurative, but I think they're a lot of times they're they're literal. They're like his word is literal. When he says something, it's like literal. So I thought that was interesting um to share and then one other thing we we looked and especially since today is april 1st um we were looking up earlier about the calendar and switching from um the gregorian calendar to the julian calendar to the gregorian calendar and this is switching topics to how um i think there was the the person that you quoted from who said that they were looking for small distortions in time and I mean, this is not a small distortion in time, but I know when they switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, they like lost 11 days. So I just wonder, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, could that switching of the calendars even have to do with, you know, all of that stuff with, uh, you know, going back in time and manipulating time? I wonder how that played into it. Um, and then also since today's April 1st, I'll post this here. I saw I found something earlier that talked about what... Um, here, let me post it. Talk about what April Fool's Day was and that that's the day that like when they when they switch calendars and um, it um, it the P New Year's was around April 1st. This says on the um, on the Julian calendar and then those that still celebrated it were called fools. So I thought that was interesting. We actually kind of went through and researched all the points in this little meme and found that they were, they were pretty much true. So I thought that was interesting, but uh, just uh, that's, that's really it. I'm curious your thoughts on that. So what you said first about the transmission from Zion was, was beautiful. And I know people listening to that were just blown away by that and that they're actually like, you know, speaking to us from wherever Zion is. And uh, I loved it. Uh, nothing to add to that. Other than that, I'm I'm totally using that material, and I'll be I'll be looking at that. Um, the you know the the Julian to the Gregorian calendar and how that plays with distortion in time is is something that I never thought about before. Um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. But does anyone have any thoughts on that? 
Those are some really great, uh, Marianne, those are some great thoughts you had. The, uh, just because I don't have, you know, an answer. Uh, I don't want to just, you know, talk out of my butt, right? Like, uh, I, I don't have an answer, but th th those are very good thoughts. Uh, no. Before we uh, move on, I uh, just wanted to uh, tell you a story of, that happened in 1996. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Um, I was uh, working as a uh, freelance security guard in a parking lot of a restaurant in Portland called the Buffalo Gap. And uh, while I, I did this for uh, about a year, and uh, one night I was sitting in my car, and um, there's people come in in a Jeep, open top Jeep, and it's, um, uh, uh, <laughs> what's her name? Uh, it's, um, not Nancy Kerrigan, the other one, the one that uh, didn't hit her. Tanya Harding. Tanya Harding, right. So she, uh, they recognize that I'm the security guard, and they give me five bucks to watch their Jeep. And, um, and she, uh, I, after I got off work, I went in there to tell them I was taken off. And um, she was, uh, I, I was sitting in an area where there was a couple of pool tables and then like this galley kind of separate place where they had video poker and she was in there with a margarita in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand and she was like kicking the machine and cussing at the machine because <laughs> i guess she lost some money but she kind of like dominated that restaurant for a while um just thought that was a funny story and, and i know it's totally like brings everything down to a, stu a level of stupidity but i just wanted you to hear that since you've written so much about um tonya harding yes that's it yeah that's yeah, the the as you guys know, uh, my view on the Nancy Kerrigan Tanya Harding incident was a hoax. That she was never clubbed. Um, as I kept saying over over again, just show me the wound. Just show me that you know there, it should have been like purple and black and just her leg. It, just show me, right? Show me the blood. Show me something. There's nothing, right? She gets out there and skates and does really well. Um, but you know the thing is with these uh, hoaxes and stuff, um, they don't always recruit the brightest people, and uh, I do not think that that Tanya Harding was, and her entire crew appeared like they were all that bright of people, which was you know part part of the, the whole thing too, right? That they were kind of like white you know hicks who wanted their stardom, and like she had that a uh, bodyguard that would. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, yeah, reliving that again. But um, good story. Thank you for telling me that. Okay, does yeah, sure. Thanks for listening, and that's Portland for you. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that. Sorry, I you know I you guys you know one of my first jobs was working at Disneyland. Um, I, I think I mentioned earlier tonight that what my my first first job was working at the Hawthorne Pool at the Hawthorne High School. That's where the Beach Boys, you know, with the Brian Wilson and Carl and Dennis Wilson. Um, but after that, it was uh, I worked at Disneyland, and because I worked out there in the parking lot and the tolls, uh, I you know had a lot of run-ins with celebrities out there. So I got to see my share too, and you know everyone from you know Thomas Kincaid and Steven Spielberg and you know all different people like that. So um, good times. Anyways, um, does it before we start the after party um, break that out? Does anyone else have any thoughts on anything that we covered tonight? Any Thoughts you want to throw in?
I thought it was interesting last week that we <laughs> we talked about some crazy things last week, and uh, we and somebody brought it up like, "What if we're all dead?" <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm laughing at it, but it's it's just it's kind of a funny thought. But I mean, I entertained. I'm like, "Oh, maybe we did. I don't know. Maybe we're all dead, and we're all in Sheol. Like this is like you know, like our uh, our." We're all like in the same dream, and we're like in torment or whatever, you know, trying to like fix that. I don't know, but it, I'm I'm surprised nobody brought that up when you know talking about the outer darkness and um, uh, yeah. So so and there, anyways, if nobody has any last thoughts, of course you guys can bring it up at the after party, whatever. I'm gonna go ahead and officially close this. Thank you everybody for coming and being a part of this. And as I read off my work to you guys. And I will say for anyone who made it this far in the video that I, I've i covered a lot on the Millennial Kingdom, different aspects of it, and I'm sure I, I still will more, uh, but I'm starting to shift gears. And uh, the, the next big thing I'm going to be hitting up and covering is the Gospel of Peter, uh, Bezora Kepha. And for those of you who don't know, Bezora Kepha is, it's only 60 verses. What has uh, survived, the manuscript that we have? It's one chapter, 60 verses. And I thought, oh, this is something I'll just tackle in one week, one night, you know. I thought it'd be easy. And, I'll, you know, like, then I'm doing a verse-by-verse a, a -verse, um, commentary, and it's like three or four pages per verse, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be a book. So, Unfortunately, it's not going to be something that's going to be ready for you guys in the next couple of weeks. It's it's something that's going to take three or four weeks to really prepare and get together. And it's I think it's going to be really great. I love the Gospel of Peter. It is so phenomenal and it's so controversial. And it just ties in with a lot of my research that I've been going over. It just agrees with it. It just comes in together. So I'm looking forward to going through that with you guys. And um, something to look forward to. And then my hope this summer is to start back into Romans again and finish that series that I initially intended to do. Um, I really want to finish it. So um, anyways, yeah. So with that, we're going to close Shabbat Shalom one last time. And uh, let the after party begin. Thank you all for coming. Yeah, you guys are talking about this. Y'all change his mind. He he seems to a few times. Um, there's one where he repented of making mankind. That's in Genesis. Yeah, good night to everybody that needs to leave. Uh, thank you for coming, Pamela, Torah Girl. I have a comment. I'm in a way. I'm trying to figure out who's talking right now. Oh, this is Lisa. So we always think that Sheol is under us under our earth plane of existence.
and that the outer darkness is below us. But if the if there's seven firmaments and we're in the first one and Yah's in the one at the seventh, aren't we the lowest? So why do we assume something is under us? What if we are? That's what I think the outer darkness rings so true to me. We are the bottom rung, like the bottom of it. It is us. That's a that's a really good thought. Um, and I'm not saying that that's untrue. You, you might be spot on. And it, just so everybody listening understands what she was talking about, about there being seven firmaments. And these can be found in books like uh, Third Esdras, um, Third Baruch. No, I'm sorry. No, Third Baruch, um, Second Enoch, uh, Ascension of Isaiah. There's quite a few books that talks about the seven firmaments of heaven. Great books. I love them. Uh, I love Ascension of Isaiah. It's one of my favorites. And um, and so, the of course, the first heaven would be under the firmament here. But then once you get past the the waters above there's a whole nother the second heaven with another firmament you just keep going up you know we're like in this building right like a beehive or something and we're on the ground floor i still think that there is shield below us i still think there is and in fact uh if you read the legends of the jews uh, volume one and the opening pages uh, i'm still trying to get to the bottom of this and where it's being sourced from but they say that there's seven worlds below ours and um the world directly below us interestingly enough is where like there's a lot of kooky creatures like the you know like when, when it talks about the and jasher where like the the people with like the lion heads come up and do battle and stuff you know we always go into the nephilim research and say that these were you know some sort of hybrid creatures created on this earth but it is possible that they actually come from the earth below us i've actually wondered this with like the wild men and sasquatch and that kind of stuff of uh, the dog men um, but what if these actually come from the earth below us? What if they came up here and got stuck up here? Um, and so I do think there's a possibility that there are realms below ours. Um, it, it's not, you know, people think of a hollow earth theory. This is more like, no, it's it's more like a building, you know. Um, and uh, that we're like on the first floor, the ground floor, but there's like basements below us. Um, but I don't that, that you could be you could be correct 100%. That was a good thought. So I wanted to say something about um, some stuff that I saw on Enoch that someone brought up to me one day, and it kind of threw me back. I didn't really know what to make of it. But in Enoch, uh, it's in Enoch 2, um, it's in 2nd Enoch, I think 7th verse, says how he was taken up to the second heaven. And it said, and those men picked me up. And brought me up to the second heaven, and they showed me, and I saw a darkness greater than earthly darkness. And there I perceived prisoners under guard, hanging up, waiting for the measureless judgment. And those angels have the appearance of darkness itself, more than earthly darkness. And unceasingly they made weeping all day long. And I said unto the men who were with me, Why are these ones tormented unceasingly? And it says, Those men answered me, These are the ones who turned away from Yahweh, who did not obey Yahweh's commands, but of their own will plotted together and turned away with their prince and with those who are under restraint in the fifth heaven. And I felt very sorry for them. And those angels bowed down to me and said to me, man of God, pray for us uh, to Yahweh. And I answered him and said, who am I, mortal man? So when he, he's talking about they, that he grabbed him, took him up to the second heaven, and that's where he saw this darkness where, where there were angels in prison. And, you know, 
I don't know if it's just the second Enoch isn't like, you know, a legitimate book per se. Um, but I think second Enoch and third Enoch talk about this concept of the multiple heavens. And there's something analogous to a darkness where there's prisoners somewhere up in the second heaven. Yeah, there's, it seems like in, uh, what, so I started a paper a couple years ago and gave a presentation on the seven firmaments of heaven. And one of the things I noted is that when you look at um, the ascension of Isaiah uh, with Enoch, second Enoch, and then third Baruch, we'll look at their different job titles. Isaiah was a, a um, well, he was uh, a prophet with the king in Jerusalem. Uh, Baruch was a, uh, well, he was Yirmiyahu or Jeremiah's uh, kind of uh, disciple, but he was uh, a scribe and also, uh, you know, devoted to the temple. And then Enoch was, uh, well, you guys know, but he was like a advocate, kind of a messianic prototype prophet, so on and so forth, and he dealt with the Watchers. So, what's interesting in each of those books is that they, as they ascend through the different heavens, each one of them, they see things that correspond with their earthly ministry. I find that really interesting. And um, and so, as Isaiah goes up through all seven, he goes through all the different courtrooms, the different thrones. As Baruch goes up, I think he sees... What does he see? I think he sees like the judgment of like Babel and Babylon and different things like that throughout. And then Enoch sees like the, the punishment of the watchers. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's, there, it seems like, you know, because when we think about these, these different heavens, um, these, these are huge, right? I mean, look how huge our realm is. So if, if each of these worlds are like at least the size of ours, it might be way bigger. I don't know. Um, you know, they're being taken to this one small little scene. It would be like me going to San Quentin and telling you the whole earth is just San Quentin. Well, obviously not, right? Um, so I don't know. Yeah, but th that's a good um, that's a good thought, and it, it could be up there too. It seems to me that there are just prisons on different levels of heaven. Uh, you know, Baruch said he saw the um, the people that were turned into animals from the Tower of Babel. They were like in this, the, the second or the third heaven too. Another um, thing about Enoch, I think it comes from Joshua, I posted it in the chat a little bit earlier, is that it says that when he was taken up in the whirlwind, that what was left over was like a big pile of snow or something like that. It just says there was snow and they had to dig through the snow looking for the men that were with them that disappeared too. And, or like found them dead or something, I forget exactly what happened to the men. Um, but, but the fact that there was snow there, I was someone at the same time um, that I was looking that up mentioned something about, uh, dimensions or something like that how the outer darkness and the light there's two different worlds they just can't see each other and i was wondering like well what if they're what if it's more than just dimension it's like physically there they're both there but the other dimension is like we see it as being frozen right now or something like that it's just a thought well you know i think the only other dimension there is is the spiritual realm which the majority of us can't see into and I, I think that's what's happening with CERN is that somehow they have opened up a portal with these uh, demonic beings, uh, fallen angels, whatever, in this last time, that they have actually opened up a portal and that people are now being able to see into the spiritual realm. As far as all these other dimensions, I, I don't, 
I don't buy any of it. I think that's all deception. I think there's only two realms, the one we're in and the spiritual realm. That's just my thoughts on the matter. Hello, everybody. Um, so I'm really intrigued with the idea that the hidden wilderness is, you know, you know, somewhere on in this realm that we just aren't allowed to go to. Um, but then I know that, uh, Noel, you mentioned the, um, the Matthew 8, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. I'm really, I'm just, I just had a question about that. Like if you looked at why he would say that after the Roman centurion came to him, like there's any clues in that story and why he would mention the sons of the kingdom there. Right. The, well, okay. So it, it seemed to be a, a, a transfer of the sons of the kingdom, right? So, you know, Yahusha is con as, as a prophet who is coming to prophesy of what will be befall that generation, right? Not a distant generation, but that generation within 40 years, they would see all these things that he talked about, at least many of them, um, befall, is that the, you know, and so the sons of the kingdom, it could refer to the Yahudim. Right, it could be that that they would be tossed out, and he's saying, "Look, this, this Roman centurion, um, these people are going to make it in the kingdom. You're not, right?" So that could be that, um, or it could be this idea that um, it could almost be like a, a double entendre in a way, like a double meaning that uh, it could also be a reference to there is a there's a time where the the, the actual children of the kingdom are tossed out as well the actual children of the kingdom um so i don't know i mean i'm just that just it, it's one of those things where you know we we get so boxed up in in traditional theology that you can't see it in a, any other way one of the biggest insults that people throw my way is that they'll come to me and they'll go like they'll say like this is the worst theology I've ever seen. You know, this is the, this is the worst eschatology. And what they're actually saying in those moments is that they have been schooled in a certain way of thinking. Uh, they have, you know, it, it is, you know, you fill in your charts with revelation and the seven years and, you know, the, the millennium that happens afterwards and all these different things. And, and I'm talking about something different. Therefore, I must have not been educated in this way, um, which I was raised with all the same ways, too. Right. And so when you start looking at this stuff, you start going, well, that traditional idea that I was looking at kind of, I, I could see what they're saying, but it kind of falls to the wayside. Uh, it doesn't really match anymore. And it might be talking about something else, right? Like who in the right minds ever would ever ask the question that we are living in the outer darkness. Like that's just not something that people talk about. Right. Um, I could see people like <laughs> other YouTubers who, uh, are completely against the millennial kingdom idea is already happening. Like they'll just start, their heads will start spinning. They're going to start flipping out when they hear that Noel said that we're in the outer darkness. Cause you know, that just goes against everything that they advocate. So, uh, but I, hopefully I answered your question. It, yeah. The, it seems to be like, he could be saying that the Jews will be cast out. The Yahudim, they will be cast out the children of the kingdom and uh, be replaced with these people who have faith who believe, like the Roman centurion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was uh, getting my hair trimmed the other day, and um, 
you know, I have a very gay uh, hairdresser guy and, you know, he talks about it, but he has stuff about prayers all around, you know, and, and so it was just funny because I, I was like, you know, I look into things and I don't necessarily believe, you know, what the church says, you know, I think it's possible that, um, you know, we're, we're in the short season of deception and we're waiting for, you know, uh, a new heaven, a new earth. And he just gets this shock look on his face and he goes, you mean the thousand years of peace have already happened? <laughs> and I just laugh and say, it's possible. And it was just so cool to see him like, because that made, you know, it's like that traditional idea that we're still waiting forever. It's just, it's a way that people lose hope. And so it's like to, you know, for him to maybe go home and think about that could maybe make him reconsider some of the way he's living. And so I, I think this is amazing. Yeah. Uh, I talked to enough people about this where we can actually find common ground really quickly. We're like, okay, so you believe that there, you know, that Yahushua is coming back and that there's gonna be this time of tribulation and that there, then, then a thousand years will be established. And they'll go like, yeah, I, I believe that. And like, okay. And then after the thousand years is going to be a season of deception when Satan's going to go out and just see the whole world. They're like, yeah, I believe that. But then as soon as you say, well, what if we're in the season of deception? They're like they just start, they just they flip out and they're like, no, that's that you're you're lying, you know this kind of stuff, and you're deceived. And it's and like I'll point out like, well, if you're in the age of deception, like aren't people going to be deceived in there? And they're like, yeah, but we wouldn't be that deceived, you know. They just they can't they can't deal with the fact, even though I'm essentially saying the same thing as their model. Um, it's just the placement that just people flip out over this thing. So obviously you, you guys all know it here and you guys have been a part of this discussion. So 